0: Good evening, everybody. It's Devon Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. 21st February, 2015. Oh, is it a munchkin month? Is it a vertically challenged month? Is it a month whose nose hairs are closer to its shoes? Yes, it is, in fact, a short month. So, if you could see your way clear, I know. I did some rough back of the napkin calculations. Got about half a million, probably to a million listeners. And I think that based upon the statistics of PayPal and other associated income streams, I'm guessing that a significant majority of you are not donating. Now, it is a short month, so if you were to feel at all like donating, now would be the month to do it. Sil vous plaît. That means if you would pay, please, because my French is uh, fairly ancient. You go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. You know, pay for what you consume, do the right thing. You don't need me to nag you. Actually... You really do. <laughs> Statistically, you really do need me to uh, to nag you, and so uh, if you could do that, uh, that would be fantastic. And if uh, you do that, then it seems to me uh, highly likely that we will not end up using the voice box, uh, which <laughs> we were playing around with at the beginning uh, of the show. Uh, and I think that would really be to the benefit of everyone's sanity. Well, except mine, because I think it'd be great fun. But uh, yeah, freedomainradio.com slash donate. If you could uh, help us out, that would be beyond fantastic. And uh, with that having been said, Mike, who do we have on first?
1: All right. Well, up first today is David. David wrote in and asked, does it violate the non-aggression principle to not be a vegan? If not, how can we justify slaughtering billions of animals per year when it's been proven that we do not need to consume animals to live a happy, healthy life? Should we all go vegan? For the planet.
0: All right, interesting, interesting question. What are your thoughts?
2: Hi, Stefan. David here. Hi. Um, how you doing?
0: I'm well. How you doing?
2: Good. <clears throat> okay, so first of all, I wanted to kind of agree upon the definition of the non-aggression principle. So, in my eyes, it's the idea that each person has the right to make her, his, or her own choices in life. So long as they do not involve aggression, defined as the initiation of use of force or fraud against others, do you agree with this?
0: Yeah, the, non- the non-aggression principle: Thou shalt not initiate force or fraud against others. Sure. I mean, I think that's that's pretty standard.
2: So right. So if you initiate the, the use of force, that would be infringing upon the, the non-aggression principle, obviously. So, yeah, my question is, can we morally continue to slaughter animals against their will when our survivability and health is not incumbent upon doing so?
0: Um. So if you can just sort of give me more of an explanation, because the non-aggression principle generally requires a sentient being, right? Like, so if I have some sort of infection and I take some sort of antibiotics, right. then that's not a violation of the non-aggression principle, right?
2: Because you're right. Okay right. So
0: so where there like the the non-aggression principle applies to creatures who are capable of comprehending the non-aggression principle, right? And and this is for people as well. So if if I'm uh, uh, walking next to you and I have my sudden first and unexpected epileptic attack and thump you in the head, I don't think that people would be overly like, oh what an evil guy, he beat someone up, right? It would be like, well that's a real shame, right? Sure. Um and um so, and that's because I would not be in control of my body, would not be able to at that point process the non-aggression principle. Similarly, if uh, you know, I suddenly just start sleepwalking and uh, you leave your house unlocked and I wander into your house, that's not the same as me coming in to steal or do harm to you or whatever because I'm, by sleeping I'm not in a state where I can process the non-aggression principle. Similarly, at the very low end of IQ, uh, it's possible, of course, that moral responsibility fades into the woodwork, and so on. Right. So um, babies you know, thump people occasionally, but we don't because they don't understand the non-aggression principle and not even in full control of their bodies. Right? right. So it does require that the agent to be covered by the non-aggression principle be able to comprehend the non-aggression principle. And as far as I understand it, that does not cover animals. Now that doesn't mean that I'm indifferent to. The welfare of animals, in any way, shape or form, but I think if you want to tie the non-aggression principle in, then you're going to have to find a way to have it cover um, agencies which do not comprehend the non-aggression principle, which I think would be would be tough. Like if, if an animal attacks a human being uh, and, and you know often that animal is put down, but it's not put down because it's morally evil, right, right? It's just dangerous, right? And so that, I think is is a challenge. What do you think?
2: Well, I think that you know humans are entitled to self-defense, de- de- of course, so you know, I can't remember the last time that a wild animal attacked me. you know we live in 2015. We don't really have to worry about a lion chewing our our head off. you know so if, if that ever happens, you know I, by all means, self-defense is, is a great is a great thing um, but I also, I guess the question would be, is it more? Morally- oh, sorry,
0: hang on. Just, sorry, just just interrupt. I mean, the, the major danger, of course, doesn't come from wild animals, right? Every time you wash your hand, you are killing billions and billions of bacteria in order to keep yourself safe, right? Sure. So we are we're under constant attack by other organisms and, um, you know, medicine and antibiotics. And, of course, if, if you get a, a vaccine, you are training your immune system to kill viruses that otherwise would try and well, not try and do you harm, but end up doing you harm. So we are under constant assault from living organisms around the world that uh, we're constantly killing billions and billions of them every day.
2: Sure. But I think that, you know, land-dwelling mammals are a little different than bacteria and, and virus.
0: Would you agree? Well, no, but we're looking at the principle. Land-dwelling mammals can't comprehend the non-aggression principle and neither can viruses, right? So they would sort of be under the same – in the same category. Where I think your point is coming from, which I want to sort I don't want to be like annoying uh, guy who blocks uh, all all progress in the conversation. I think where you're coming from is you're saying, look, I mean, we wash our hands because otherwise we can get sick um, and we use antibiotics because otherwise we could get sick and die. But that's different from voluntarily choosing to eat meat, which we don't have to do. Is, is that sort of the difference?
2: Yes, but then also, I mean, would you say that bacteria are sentient beings?
0: Well, from for purposes of philosophy, there's a category called can comprehend the non-aggression principle. Right. And cannot comprehend the non-aggression principle. The scales of lack of comprehension have some validity, but... There is that fundamental divide.
2: But so you're saying that an animal would have to be able to understand our linguistics, then our our spoken language, human spoken language.
0: Well, to be annoyingly precise, it wouldn't have to be spoken because mute people can understand it, Uh, it, but it would have to be communicated in some manner. So many years ago, and then there's a famous play with Anne Bancroft, uh, uh, there was a woman named Helen Keller of which there were a proliferation of unsavory jokes when I was a kid about her. But uh, she was born blind, deaf, and dumb, and uh, she lived uh, sort of as a a strange kind of beast uh, in a way until a a therapist actually got her to understand uh, through touch, through tracing letters on her hand, got her to understand language and got her to understand concepts, and she ended up writing books and she got well-educated and so on. And she herself said that before any kind of language she just existed at a kind of insensate chaos within the mind, just every particular moment. Right. But the only sense that she really had, of course, was, was you know taste, smell and, and touch. but uh, um, so prior to her having any concepts, would she be covered by the non-aggression principle, i don 't think she would, but after she learned language by this woman tracing the letters on her hand and um, After she learned language and concepts and ideas, then she would be covered by the uh, non-aggression principle.
2: Okay, so I guess another thing that I would like to to mention is just the 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 topic of speciesism, and so speciesism and defined in philosophy is the discrimination based on judging others not for who they are but what they are not, right? So the lives and experiences of non-human animals are usually considered less important than those of human beings simply because they're not like humans. Obviously, a dog does not share the same intelligence that we do, Um, the same level of intelligence. Yet non-human animals have emotional lives and feel pain, pleasure, fear, and joy. So I would argue that any form of aggression toward a being that we can can share empathy with would be a violation of the non-aggression principle. And I, I hate well, to, I, but, but see, but then you
0: would, you know, th- this is the challenge of philosophy is you, you'd have to make that case. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I'm not sure what we share empathy with exactly means. Does that mean that, uh, uh it would have to be a, a, an animal that would be a pack animal because as far as I understand it, it is pack animals who, uh, have the greatest capacity for sort of bonding and empathy. The difference between sort of dogs and, and cats and so on. So how would you, uh, if you could sort of break it down for me a little more, what what does it mean to say those we share empathy with?
2: That's a tough one, I guess. But I, I just think, I, I think about the slaughterhouses. I think about what's going on uh, so that, you know, I, I think about the, the subsidies that the government puts, puts in to be able to go to any nearest store and buy a cut of meat. That's basically what I think of. So, you know, I'm thinking like i was saying it just just animals you know so lambs i mean babies these babies are being slaughtered lambs
0: um oh veal is particularly repulsive right i mean they don't they feed these baby cows like unbelievably rich nutrients and keep them from moving so that their that their their meat gets as fatty as humanly possible and yeah it's 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 utterly repulsive what what is done
2: well that and then the Baby cows, you know baby cows are taken from their mothers after the mothers are impregnated against their will um, you know a, a female cow will a dairy cow will be pregnant i don 't know how many times I think it's like ten times within her life against her will, and then every time they birth the the calf it's stolen from the mother because we need the milk right the humans. <laughs> humans are, you know, not even supposed to be drinking another species' milk. Like, we're the only ones that do that, you know what I mean? It's it's disturbing, to say the least.
0: Well, okay, I mean, I, I'm i willing to uh, accept these arguments, and my position, for those who don't know, and, and this is not syllogistically reasoned out from first principles, I mean, some of the earlier stuff around the non-aggression principle is closer to that, but my position is that, if the true cost of livestock were reflected in the price right meat consumption would collapse
2: mm-hmm.
0: i mean they say what it takes seven times the water seven times the food to like to to produce seven times the energy to produce a pound of meat rather than the pound of wheat
2: yeah i think it's more like 11 times
0: yeah it probably has gone up right and and the uh, you know of course the amount of antibiotics the amount of uh, like it's it's just it's crazy just how expensive eating other species is. Now, because I am a voluntarist, because I'm an anarchist, the question is, if we find this stuff distasteful, and heaven knows, a lot of it is. So, you know, distasteful in the extreme. And I think it takes a pretty cold-hearted person to shrug and say, well, we're at the top of the food chain, so there.
2: Right.
0: There's a great... I think Paul McCartney said if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everybody would be a vegetarian. Yeah. So I, I do think it is distasteful. I don't think it's morally evil to eat other species. And, and there's a whole bunch of arguments around that, which I've gone into uh, many times before, so I won't go into them here. I don't think it's morally evil to eat other species. I think it is something that is distasteful and expensive. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the system we have right now, it's ridiculously subsidized, and because of that, it's artificially lowered in price. And uh, I think it would be. Um, and of course, people are very distant from the food that they eat. You just get this red goo in a plastic bag, basically, and and that's you know the act it got it flayed off an animal's bones and so on. It's not really very prevalent to people's minds. Not really doesn't really imprint upon people's minds.
2: Right.
0: So I do think that. Um, animals should be treated better. And, and the environmental impact of livestock farming is huge. And um, there is, I think, it, I think it does damage people to some degree to be that distant from the destruction that they are, in a sense, participating in. So I think it's, it's a negative practice. And, and uh, I think that the more we can move towards um, not eating other animals, I think the better. I think that that case needs to be made morally, but I think the best way uh, to do that, of course, as I've mentioned here before, is treat children better, raise them peacefully, explain to them the realities of the, uh, you know, the situation in the world, and, uh, you know, let them make their sort of informed choices as they get older. So I think it's one of these, you know, should everyone be a vegan? I don't know. Honestly, I mean, I have no idea because I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a doctor, I don't know what the health requirements or issues are and so on, but... I certainly do think that uh the animals of course most if there was not livestock farming these these cows would probably not be alive in the first place right because they're raised they right. they are alive in order to be preyed upon or, or exploited in this manner or say used if you want more you in sort of morally neutral terms
2: I think there would be sig- significantly less of them fewer cows um I don't think that they you know they would exist in the wild you know they would be grazing pastures.
0: Yeah, I mean, if we could just find a way to ride cows in competitions, they'd be like horses, and they would then occupy a different moral category in our mind. You know, I mean, seriously, it, it is it is deranged, the artificiality and, and the shallowness. Well, horses are prettier than cows, so we eat cows, but the idea of eating horses is gross. It's like, okay. that makes no sense That's whatsoever. That's speciesism argument. Well, it's not even speciesism. I mean, it's, it's, it's because it's just like they're prettier. And, and little girls don't bond with, with horses, with cows. They bond with horses and so on. And, and, uh, uh, but, of course, horses have been used in war. They've been used in agriculture. They've been used in, in, in show jumping and you know, since they've basically been domesticated. And so we have a sort of different relationship with, with them as utility animals rather than as consumption animals. But it is completely ridiculous just how we favor some animals and not others, you know. Oh, yeah, I'll eat bacon. But the idea of having a thigh of cat is unbelievably repulsive. Although, I mean, again, some of it's cultural, too. I mean, I remember the first time I went to an authentic Chinese restaurant, I really felt like I was just basically randomly throwing darts at Noah's Ark to figure out what the hell I was going to get to eat. There doesn't seem to be any barriers Sea slugs, okay, snake soup, okay. It's like, oh, yeah, we just eat everything. <laughs> if we, you know, if, it's, if, it, if it can be knocked over by a car, we'll put it in our bellies. That's really all they get at. So, I, I, you know, I think diminishing, but I think that the focus would be to, you know, treat kids wed, uh, well, get to a stateless society, uh, and, um, uh, you know, treat children well and all that. I mean, that's, that's the way, I think, to, to get uh, animals uh, treated better, uh, t- treated better in society. I mean, the other question, of course, is pets, and I, I, I have a very complicated relationship to pets, mm-hmm. and I, I can't, you know, this is just thoughts and feelings. It's not a particularly well worked out uh, argument. I was in the grocery store the other day I had to pick something up, and I just realized there's a lot of pet food in a grocery store. Like there's a lot of pet stuff going down in a grocery store, and you know, there are of course, entire dedicated stores for for pet stuff and all that and uh, environmental damage of pets is monstrous huge but the degree of emotional comfort they give people the degree of familiarity the illusion of intimacy you know I mean I don't know I've said this before people having relationship you know like the traditional stereotype of the woman who never got married and never had kids having a bunch of cats it's like well that to me is a that's a cheap substitute for something that you should have struggled to achieve And, um, but yeah, I mean, environmental destruction wrought by pets is is staggering. Human resources, vets, medicines, uh, antibiotics, uh, uh, grooming, I mean, just the the cat litter garbage, uh, dog crap everywhere. I mean, yeah, the amount of environmental destruction wrought simply by having pets is, is, is astonishing and uh, but at the, you know at the same time they give people a lot of comfort now you could say well yes but the environmental destruction of having cows is prodigious but it's comfort food for people they really like to taste and it can be good for them and you know so i it's it's complicated but i would like to see children treated better growing up with the kind of empathy that would include other species and no more subsidies for all of this butchery
2: right could i jump in there for a second yeah yeah go <clears throat> okay so kids first i totally agree i don't disagree with that But I think that um, couldn't we just say no violence altogether and that would cover both of them? That would cover animals and then also the children because we we were just saying children. Let's start with children. But why not both?
0: I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean both equally?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Why can't we... No,
0: that's not, that's not possible. I mean, come on. I mean, well, you're asking for the impossible. Because, because, look, there is something... The whole reason why we ended up as a dominant species is because of DNA affinity. That's the reason why people like their own kids generally more than other people's kids. Right? It's why races tend to congregate together if left in a, a sort of uncoerced environment. It's why there's Chinatown. It's why there's little Italy. It's why there's little Greece. It's why there's little Afghanistan in places. And so uh, a biological affinity, DNA affinity, is foundational. I, I think asking people to, to not have anything to do with that, I think, is too far. Like, if you have a kid, you have a daughter, and there's a dog snarling at and advancing at your five-year-old daughter, yeah. and if the only thing you can do, if, if, if the only thing you have is a gun, you know what you're going to do, right?
2: Yeah, but that's self-defense.
0: Well, no, but you said equal. Now, well, philosophically, I, well, if they're I'm equal, you, you, you can't. Like you talk about it's not, it,
2: the human, though. If a human were snarling okay, at
0: you... Okay, no, let's, let's take another example. I, I get what you're saying. Let's take another example. Your daughter is drowning, and a, and a mouse is drowning. Who are you saving?
2: Um, I would save my daughter first.
0: Of course, of course, right? And and to, to think otherwise would be absurd. Right. And I would assume that the mother mouse would not go and save my daughter either, Right. <laughs> I would grant the same right to the mother mouse and not call it selfish for saving its own daughter, its own sure. kid, right? its own mouse-ling. So biological affinity is foundational. I mean, it's what the DNA do. What do the DNA want? They want, reproduce us, reproduce us. Forget about everyone else. It's us. Photocopy us. Reproduce us. That's right. what they're all about. And I just, um, to say, well, let's treat all species equally, uh, I think is not valid. And, of course, there's, there's no way to... Um, to enforce that particularly of course uh, if all living organisms are equal i mean you, you can't take any medicine i mean you, you get what i'm saying we can't wash your hands i mean it all becomes very silly very quickly but um i do think that um asking you know f- for me asking people to overcome close dna preference it's sort of like what communists do in saying well if everyone works for the common good and no one has any self interest eh, you know <laughs> we only gained the capacity to develop a concept called communism because we respond to incentives and we 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 have close DNA preferences and our species DNA preferences and all that. And so that which... I, I've sort of never been a big fan of a philosophy that is only developed because of particular biological imperatives then saying well, we should overthrow these biological imperatives. I mean, you just can't make them equal. Because again, uh, sorry, and the other thing too is that uh, in order to be covered by the NAP, you have to be able to comprehend the NAP.
2: Right, but I I still think that's a little speciesist because, you know...
0: No, no, no. you're begging the question because you're saying it's biased, but you're trying to establish whether it's biased or not. It's like calling someone a racist before you've established whether they're racist. So speciesist is just one of these. It's 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 a, a bit of an ugly word because it's implying a, a, an ugly and and nasty and immoral prejudice. But we're trying to establish whether that's even valid or not. So I don't think you can use that word as yet. If you can prove it, then sure. But
2: okay, can I present you with another with a, another argument? Just another sure. another thought. <clears throat> Let's say, and I, you've probably heard this before, but what if there's a more intelligent life life source? Let's just say aliens, extraterrestrial behavior that is more intelligent than us. And they come down and they observe us and they say, man, these humans are treating animals horribly. And, you know, they have their own language. They have you. They can they can speak with each other, but we can't understand what they're saying. And they take us hostage. How would we feel then? Because it's it's basically like if it were happening to us.
0: This, the, I mean, this is not a possible scenario in any way that I could ever figure out because I think it, it twists the variables too much. So, for instance, let us say that uh, – let's say you and I find the eating of cat meat particularly appalling, whatever. Let's any- just say that. No, no. Let's just say for us, right? Okay. So then we go to some tribe in – that's never been found before in Borneo that raises cats and eats them, right? Okay. Beca- and let's just say that, that we're just way more intelligent than this group. We would be intelligent enough to understand that this is where they are in their development. Uh-huh. Right? So the idea that super-intelligent aliens are going to come and punish us, I mean, if they're intelligent enough, they would be anthropologists, right? Okay. And they would come and they would say, well, an anthropologist's goal is to study, not judge, right? Okay. And so they wouldn't come and, you know, blow us up because, you know, in the sort of Star Trek three whale scenario, they wouldn't come and blow us up or kidnap us or think we were morally horrible for hurting animals. Now, they may disagree with us and they may say, look, we've got a really great argument. You know, we're going to switch brains with you and a dog. This is how good our technology is. We're going to switch brains with you and a dog and you will get to live for an hour in a dog's mind and you will get to live for an hour in a cow's mind and then we're going to put you in a cow's mind and we're going to take away your baby and your, right, and your udders are going to twitch and your four bellies are going to contract in horror and all that kind of stuff, right? And then we would pop back in our own minds and say, oh my God, I'm never touching meat again. It would be like eating a friend, right? It'd be like eating my, my favorite dog. Okay. So so they wouldn't come down and do something horrible to us. They would come down and say, Well, this is where they are in their development. And we can make better arguments. We have the technology and so on, but the idea that they're just gonna come down and do horrible things to us because being intelligent also they would recognize that um, maybe they were they they would have gone through a phase of eating animals, right? Maybe they'd have had to, pretty much, right? I mean, unless it was an all vegetable planet, in which case, I don't know, we just throw some onion dip at them and let them, <laughs> <laughs> let some uh, let meatloaf uh, eat them up. And um, so they, they would have had to have gone through an eating other animals phase and then they would have developed some argument or some understanding or something that we don't know about that, that allowed them to surmount that. But then, then couldn't come to us who don't even have any idea about that and then punish us for that. Does that make sense?
2: Sort of, but then couldn't you also say that we as humans being the most Intellectual moral agents on the planet have a have a duty to stop all violence when it's not necessary.
0: Well, again, you'd have to make that moral case.
2: I'm stopping
0: all it. violence when it's not necessary, that these are very easy things to say, but actually putting them into philosophical, objective, universal form is really tricky. It's sort of like the argument of like, well, the government can redistribute income to end poverty. You know, if that's the beginning and end of the sentence, well, who could really disagree with it, right? But actually putting it into practice and defining it in a way that doesn't mess everything up or doesn't get ridiculously confusing and doesn't suffer from slippery slope and, and you know, all this sort of stuff, right? All these logical it's problems. Kind
2: of, it's not really... It's kind of apples versus oranges because in my instance, I'm trying to um, stop the initiation of use of force, where, whereas you're going to uh, an argument for more government which is the initiation of the use of force in no, of no, no.
0: Itself. That's No, no, no. The point is not whether it's more or less government. The point is it's easy to say, well, we have a duty to stop all unnecessary violence, right? Right. But the definition of violence and the definition of necessary and the definition of duty and what it means to stop that, these are all very complex issues. And you're kind of skating over the surface and giving a sentence that sounds plausible. But what you need to do in the realm of philosophy is really dig into those terms and figure out if you can make an argument for them that really holds together and is actionable. Mm -hmm. And certainly, look, if we were to make the case, I think that there would still be a hierarchy, right? So we would obviously, you know, so let me just take an argument. To stop all, all, let me just give you this argument. To stop all violence that is unnecessary, right? Right? Well, cats sometimes kill birds for fun, right?
2: Uh, Do they for fun or do they because they're hungry?
0: Oh, no. Cats will sometimes, they play with mice, they kill them, they don't even eat them. I mean, there are animals who hunt. Like, I watched this show uh, on, uh, I think it was on Netflix, and it was about four killer whales that were hunting a baby humpback whale. Okay. Okay. No, a baby humpback whale. And the mom was trying to protect it. And they spent hours just chasing and hunting and chasing and hunting. And they only ended up after they killed it, they only ended up eating part of the tongue.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Is that necessary? I bet you they expended more calories trying to catch this damn thing than they did actually eating it. Um, Goldfish. goldfish will eat more food than they need. They'll eat food till they explode, right? So sure. where's the necessity in all of this? So you, you, what I'm saying is that you, if you're going to say all unnecessary violence, we right. have a duty to stop, But we're going to be policing a whole lot of felines, just off the top of my head, right? That's, and that's what I mean when I say it's easy to say that kind of stuff. It's hard to actually work out how that, right. how, that how that happens in practice.
2: Right. And I, I, I think the thing with the killer whales and the humpback whale and the, bait, and the bird with the, the cat and the bird, I think that, that almost, to me, it, it equates to a human being who is a psycho, who is a psychotic, and goes and shoots up, <laughs> you know, his own kind. So, goes into a Walmart and shoots down half the what? people
0: in there. No, these are all different species.
2: Right, but I, I, it, it just seems very similar to me in that it, it's something that really doesn't happen very often, but yet still happens. Violence for for not for for not nutrition, you know, for not for not eating, I guess. So I I don't know if I you could make maybe make the argument that that there's a chemical imbalance, you know, because there's in the human in the human um, species we have people that are born, at, you know, that are chemi- have chemical imbalances in their brains, right? So why couldn't not,
0: no you, I, not not that I know of. Not, not that has any moral bearing.
2: Okay, okay. So, so everything is learned then. So,
0: I, no, know, no, I, no, I didn't say no, no. <laughs> and you get you like one pole to the other, right? <laughs> okay. They're not born evil, so it's all environmental. It's like no, no. I mean there, there are people. Um, there is a, a, a researcher in psychopathy, and um, he actually, when he scanned himself, he actually has the brain of a psychopath. But he was raised in a very loving environment, so he actually is peaceful and functional. studious and and helpful and functional and not violent and, and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, he studies psychopaths, turns out Robert Hare, I think his name is. But uh, he um, he studies these these guys, and obviously he's good at studying them because he's kind of one of them. Now, I don't know whether he comes from a family where there was a huge amount of meanness and then something changed and people got better and all that, but... He was born with a particular configuration, so we're not all born blank slates. The personality does seem to be innate, but that does not determine our moral future. Because, of course, anytime anything is determined, it's no longer moral, right? So my suggestion is, look, I mean, I think you've got great ideas and great great thoughts about it, but, you know, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is you really got to syllogize this stuff up. And really, uh, you know, if if you've got the the more passionate you are about an argument, the more you should be skeptical against it and really put it through the fire of people who disagree with you. I mean, that's the great thing that I've had the opportunity to do for many years now. And. And. If you really want to make the case and, you know, I'm not saying you can't, I mean, I'm not the Oracle at Delphi. But if you want to make the case for we have a duty to prevent all unnecessary violence, then you need to view it with as cold-eyed a skepticism as humanly possible and figure out whether you can make the case. But saying it is nowhere close to philosophy. It's not even a Hallmark card, right? Sorry to be annoying, but that's just the way it works. It's like me saying, I'm an engineer because I want an inexpensive bridge that will stand for 100 years. It's like, well, saying it is not going (laughs) to... Not going to put one good or in place, right well I'm so we do it. I know, I'm sorry
2: I'm practicing what I preach, basically, so well, no,
0: and that's fine, but that's still not a philosophical argument, right? you know i I could say, um, you know all hobos should should have their armpits stapled, and I could go out and practice that, but that still wouldn't be a, a philosophical argument, right? No so uh, the more you care about it, and I get that you care about it, and I, I respect that you care about it. But you have to really go and make a rigorous case for this, and uh, you know I care about the non-aggression principle and self-defense and and ethics and so on. And so I made you know years and years of study and grinding, God knows what, to to poop out UPB, which is like shitting a swordfish sideways, and um, it just it takes it just takes a long time. And then it still can be improved. I've just started working on a, a brief summary of it that that is going to take out some of the tangents and um, some of the um, problems with the first aversion and uh it, you know so it's still going to be an ongoing project and uh work it from the ground up i think that's that's what you because saying these sentimental things and i by sentimental i don't mean that they'd be philosophically incorrect but saying sentimental things like well don't we have a duty to stop all unnecessary violence and all that eh, you know who could say yes who could say no because it's hard to know exactly what you're talking about but if you really care about this and you do then i think you would best serve it by really grinding it through you know, put it on message boards. You know, message boards are a, a, a good place to, to test your uh, fragile theories with the troll-baked fire from hell, which is a useful and good thing. And so that would be that would be my suggestion.
2: Okay.
0: All right. got to move on to the next call. I, for God's sake, is going to finish one of these shows one of these days. <laughs> Maybe it will be today. We'll find out. But well, thanks for I your call, man. It. I really, really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your passion for okay. the uh, subject. All right. Thank thanks, you. Man.
1: All right, thanks, David. John is up next. John wrote in and said, why are virtuous humans being drawn to religion, Christianity specifically, when the Bible has so many contradictions, killings, sexism, etc? I find myself in a relationship with a virtuous, generous, intelligent, wonderful woman, but she claims to also be in a relationship with Jesus, and this causes tensions.
0: Oh, yeah. No, the abstract three-way is... uh is a real challenge to, tough to compete with the perfect boyfriend of one's imagination. But um, yeah, go ahead, John, right. do you want to give me a bit more of a background?
3: Um, yeah, actually I was uh, like raised in a Catholic home and went to Catholic school for eight years of my life. And as I got older, you know, I started seeing inconsistencies and, and the ability to justify any thing you really want by reading it in the Bible. And like, not a clear answer for anything.
0: So, uh, so you have a history, so you know. Yeah, like I had a relationship with, woman, with
3: right? God at a time in my life, so. But now, like, as I got older, I did like a lot of, started in politics and economics and then it worked its way to religion. And like, because I saw the inconsistencies in like what the government would do in economics and I just applied that to like faith and religion. I said I can't like accept that, and not like accept the like the inconsistent economics. And then look at my religion, and then think that that's all fine, and just accept the inconsistency in that. that. Makes sense.
0: Right, right. Do you want to add anything more? I mean, I've, I've certainly got some thoughts on the issue, but I don't want to sort of erase your necessary intro.
3: Yeah. Um, so yeah, I spent a uh, like a lot of time. Um, definitely. It was probably the lowest point in my life when I was trying to figure out, like, what's real, you know, what what to even believe if there is anything to believe, which I'm an atheist now, so... Um, thanks, D. A lot of help from what you put out. You put good work out. But, um, So, yeah, I definitely spent, like, a lot of time grinding it through. Even when I discovered your website, even was definitely a skeptic of, like, what you had to say, too, because I felt like that's pretty responsible good. thing to do. Good. Yeah. That's good. So, like, I totally grind everything down and just I could think and attack it, so I uh and then let me the like your your books and your theories and whatnot are probably the most um relatable thing to what where I'm at right now. So
0: Right. Why do you think um let's just call your girlfriend Sue? Uh why do you think that Sue is uh is uh, religious?
3: Um I mean we had we have talks about it a lot and I mean, she wasn't really so involved until high school began, so, like, that's like four years ago, and I feel like she's religious because she said she felt, like, confused or alone, and God saved her.
0: So, she was confused and lonely, and God saved her, is that right?
3: Yeah, I don't want to quote her words exactly, but she says something like that whenever we talk, or...
0: So she was not raised religious, is that right?
3: Well, she was exposed to it a little because her dad's Catholic too, but she never went like every Sunday like I did.
0: Right. And why was she confused and lonely, do you think?
3: Um, She said she was just unhappy. Like she wasn't fulfilled until she experienced religion, like in her life. Like she had, at the time she had a boyfriend that was older than her. Well, he was also religious, but was class president and all this stuff. She said she felt uh, like she should have been happy, but she wasn't until she found God.
0: Right. And what's her relationship like with her family?
3: Um, well, it's a good point. It's uh, not the best. Mm-hmm. Her and her father don't really communicate, and her and her mother do communicate, but they're
0: not really too friendly with each other. And why, you, why is that, do you think?
3: Um, her, well, they're very, uh, what I say goes. They don't really talk and negotiate a reason with the kids. It's pretty much a one-way street in their house.
0: You mean their parents um, dictate?
3: Yeah, very much.
0: And I assume that's been the case for her childhood.
3: Yeah, yep. from what I've heard, what she's told, told me.
0: And does she tell you what she prays for?
3: Um, not exactly now.
0: And does she, has she explained to you, or do you have any understanding what kind of God she worships? Because there's this belief that there's a monotheism, right? That there's monotheism in, you know, the basic Abrahamic religions, right? The, the big three. That it's a monotheistic God. My God, <laughs> nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, first of all, as you know, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? So that's already you've got, you know. I've given you a new car. It's in three pieces. <laughs> not so helpful, and I would not call that one car. And uh, so the you know the Fruit Ninja that's done with the original deity is pretty significant, and then you, of course, in Catholicism, you have all of the saints, you have the Virgin Mary, and so it's it's an intensely polytheistic religion. And all religions that flourish must be polytheistic. For the simple reason that they wish to appeal to as wide a set of personalities as possible, and therefore they must have as many facets as an airplane hangers' worth of piled-up disco balls. They have to, because they have to appeal to everyone, and therefore they have to have aspects of the deity that is going to appeal to every single personality structure that you can imagine. And so for the narcissist, they have, you know, God really cares about you. He thinks about you. He cares about your life. He's got a plan for you. It's like, oh yeah, okay, great. The most intelligent being in the whole universe is fascinated by me. Yes, that works, right? And for the um. Uh, the, the neurotics is like God wants you to do contradictory things to get into heaven, ooh that appeals to my neurosis, uh, and for the psychotics it's like God wants you to kill people, <laughs> okay, great, and for the people who self attack there's original sin and sin and and sin yes. and sin and you're and sin bad you oh that appeals to me as well, and for the the gentle people, there's forgive your enemies, right? And for the aggressive people, there's an eye for an eye, right? So it has to have as many commandments and as many deities as there are personalities in the world. And I could literally do that for like three hours, So I, but I won't. Yeah, there's right? a whole
3: book of that. So.
0: <laughs> right. So all of that stuff is is sort of leads me back to my question, which is yeah. what kind of God is is she worshiping? What is her deity?
3: Definitely the all loving, all forgiving, like love you no matter what happens in your life, it'll always be there.
0: Right. Right. And so what that to me says or the question that that comes to is what vacuum did this gentle deity rush in to fill?
3: Sounds like the one from her parents.
0: Right. And and so incomplete parenting or, or parenting that leaves a hole in your children is where the power vacuums rush in to fill.
3: Yeah, i like Whether to add
0: nationalism it. or militarism or deism or whatever, or, or, or religion or whatever. Sorry, go ahead.
3: Yeah, um... It also does the uh, the all loving and um, like that's God she worships and uh, the oh it will always be there and uh,
0: it's a negotiating deity, right?
3: Yes, that's yeah. It, it talks to her. It works with her.
0: Right. It does not order her around.
3: Yes, and it's always forgiving and it understands her and it doesn't. Order
0: her to do the yes. F. Right, so she had, as you, I think you were saying, non-negotiating, very authoritarian parents, and so now she has a deity that does the opposite of what her dad did. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Okay, so, so I mean, the, the question is, since there's no conceivable rational or empirical reason for someone to believe in a deity, the the question then is always if if you are in a relationship with someone who is religious the question is well why why you know why why is this tooth fairy so long in the tooth right why is santa still coming down the chimney when they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s and it's because that which is not generated intellectually must be serviceable emotionally right that which is not true must be valuable in some other way right and and so this is giving her a template for a relationship that is different, if not opposite, to the relationship she had with her parents, right? right. Now, what's her relationship like with you? Where do you fall in this pantheon?
3: Let's um, say we... Like, honesty is definitely what we... Like, I read your book on relationships, and I definitely, like, honesty is our first... Like, we are always honest with each other. And um probably out of like i haven't dated anybody in four years until her and like she definitely sticks out to me like she's definitely more caring and like all the like what she expects out of her god is how like she treats like people like me and which i think is interesting like she's always
0: understanding and
3: um yeah is that what you're looking for or
0: Well, no, I'm looking for whatever you want to provide that's as accurate as as possible, of course. Right. So, she is using the imaginary relationship with the deity as a way of practicing and rehearsing and improving her skills in negotiation, which she didn't get from her parents, right?
3: Yeah. Like, she'll talk with me about, like, she knows where I stand, that I don't believe in a God, and she will, that she, like, isn't, like most people that, you know, spit on it. Like, look at me like I'm like I worship Satan. Like she's real understanding and talks to me about it and stuff. Right. Or like, right. oh, hear my. What she you knows. Sometimes I do. Talk about. God a lot in school and or you know wherever I'm at. And then of course, I feel like it's like this big homogeneous like blob of religion, and like little sends off little blobs at me, and I have to like fight them off like they're fighting me. And I'm like, just sit there and waste my breath, point out all the irrational things about religion and contradictions, and and then it just returns back in the blob at the end of the day, and I'm worn out and it doesn't. No, even
0: but, but see, that, that's that's why I get that, right? So that's why yeah. I'm asking you what the emotional drivers are for her religiosity. Yeah. Because if you are attempting to solve an emotional need with an intellectual argument, you will fail. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, gravel is great for paving your driveway. It's not so great on your salad, right? So if you if you want a salad, and someone's saying, "Here, I'm gonna back up a truck of gravel to your breakfast table." People are like uh, useful, but not useful here, right?
3: Yes, because I feel like I she's smart. Like she gets she's high honors and stuff. And I propose these arguments that show how like the like the rationality behind religion, and it doesn't seem to effect like her idea of it but i guess because i'm looking at it through a like math like scientific mathematical sense not a emotional sense
0: right and and that is um frustrating for you and it's frustrating for her right and it doesn't ever get anywhere yes frustrating and that's that's important look you can be completely right intellectually and, and have no effect on someone's emotional state. I mean, we all know that, right? I mean, but it's hard to really get that, right?
2: Yeah,
3: that's what it really comes... We were just talking today like, she definitely gets frustrated with me when like, I... like what I say and I get like frustrated with her that she doesn't... like. She does like know what I'm saying, but she doesn't... She always says, well, I need the... I haven't thought about it that much or I need the... Look in the Bible or something along those lines, not exactly, but it always comes down to like us just agreeing that we're a bit frustrated with each other and it's something we
0: can work on. Well, yeah, and, and that's because if you, if you want to change someone's mind when the mind is filled with an emotional driver, you have to address the emotional drivers. In other words, you have to do a lot of asking. You know, what, what was happening right before you became religious? What did it do for you emotionally? You know, if there was no deity, what would that mean for you? Like, if you can just imagine that for a moment, because look, I mean, this—I think this is as true for for women as for men. But <laughs> I shouldn't say. That. But but what are your choices in dating these days? Well, do you want a theist or a communist? Right. I mean, this, this is the choice.
3: Like, I'm out there in my own little like like in public education, it's me and maybe one other friend versus everybody. And it just, yeah,
0: no, I get, it and, I get me nuts. That. and it's tough, you know. Um, and you know, do you want a, a, a woman who's who's into Jesus or a woman who's into Marx? Do you want a woman who's into the Bible or do you want a woman who's into being a social justice warrior and an extreme feminist and whatever it is? Right. I mean, yeah. th- these are your choices. Do you want the abstract statist or the tangible statist? Right. <laughs> do you want the person who worships um, the God above the clouds or? The government in the capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, these are the choices. That's what you get, <laughs> and it's like ah,
3: it's like. And your uh, website and like, That's the only form of community like I have to like keep me sane. Like or remind me that I'm not just my own. You know, I got there's other people that think this stuff through too. So
0: and listen, man, I'm telling you, John, you might not like her as much if she gives up religion what do you think that Uh, like so the the, okay so you know i'm always annoyingly nagging people about therapy self-knowledge right yeah because if she's able to you know with your wisdom and curiosity if she's able to get to the root of why religion is compelling for her and there's personal history personal trauma unsatisfactory relationships whatever it is that's at the root of why this is uh, an emotional driver for her Well, if she can get to that, then she can let go of a deity without it creating a power vacuum that sucks some other nonsense in, right? Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so, your goal of intellectually talking her out of religion without figuring out why she's interested or or susceptible to religion in the first place, you might end up with someone you like a lot less if you succeed. Does that make any sense?
3: Yeah, I... Like, would that make her, like, any less? Do you think that would make her less honest or less caring? Like,
0: because there's no, no, what I mean is that so, well, let's just say you're, you snap your fingers, she accepts your intellectual arguments, and the deity is, is, she's, I don't believe in a deity anymore. What's going to happen to her emotionally? Um, that's kind of hard to say. Probably. I'm telling you, man, you don't want to be attempting to defuse a bomb (laughs) without knowing what happens if the wires cross, right? As yeah. they usually do, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what happens to her if you get what you want, and she's like, "Okay, fine. There's no God."
3: Then, that void he was filling becomes of the loving and the caring. Was that did that go with the God, or is that depression? Depression. Yes.
0: Depression, because. It's I mean, I'm not saying that all religion is the same as a drug addiction, but a drug addiction, like some sort whatever whatever addiction it is, is a way of keeping legitimate pain at bay. Right? There's, There's a theory which says all mental ill health is the result of the avoidance of legitimate suffering. She suffered a lot as a child, and rather than deal with that suffering, she's now created a fantasy relationship that gives her everything she didn't get as a child.
1: Yeah,
3: that's funny you point that out because, uh, like, when I took my intellectual intellectual arguments and proposed them at first, like, she would have to, like, sort of, like, she'd understand them, yes, but she wouldn't accept them, you know, and she'd tell her friends and whatnot, and then she got to this point, she's like, a month or so back, she was like, I don't have much relationship with God anymore, and I'm so confused and so lonely, and I don't know what to believe anymore, and sounding very depressed, you know? Like, I feel yeah. like I'm not even, so I feel like we've kind of brushed on that phase when she's, now she's not really, like, she's just stays at a level where she doesn't accept what I have to say, but she definitely listens and understands it, but she, like, refuses to accept it for, I guess, that fear of feeling that emptiness and confusion.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, to take a big picture view, the 19th century, the age of science, the age of reason, well, they, uh, you know, they, they took, they got major headroads in against organized religion, didn't they? And what happened? Socialism, communism, fascism, two world wars, genocides, mm-hmm. a quarter of a billion people killed. I don't know what would have happened if religion had been supplanted by self-knowledge because that son of a bitch, Sigmund Freud, chickened out under pressure, betrayed the kids and stymied that flow. But that's a topic for another time. But Was it great for the 20th century that the 19th century was incredibly skeptical for religion? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Because it seems like what came along was predatory nihilism in the absence of religion. And I am more skeptical now than I was in the past I am more skeptical now of removing people's psychological structures unless you have a very compelling alternative
3: okay Um, so that's where part of this question comes in with because there's people that like demonstrate those virtues you know like my girlfriend being one I don't know how to make the onslaught of like religion stop without taking that void out, without sitting down with each one of them and finding their own personal self-knowledge, like within themselves to find it. Like,
0: like who are we talking about?
3: Um, human, like religious people.
0: Yeah. So why do we stop talking about your girlfriend? I I know I went kind of global, but that was just to sort of larger perspective, but I don't, I don't think we want to start talking about all people.
3: Okay, yeah, you're right. Good idea. That's kind of
0: shady. Well, no, it's just. I mean, it's it's a bit avoidant, right? I mean, what was your experience when you gave up on religion?
3: Um, I guess. Do you mind if I start with when I did believe in religion? Sure. Um. So I was, you know, middle school, grade school, kindergarten, all that. Eight years of it. You know, I was fully convinced. Like I have a there's something I can't see it touch it. don't really I try to talk to it doesn't talk to me back you know. just denies all my senses and all the sensibility I have, but it's there. And I was fully convinced it was in my mind, so like the biggest step for me getting over religion was seeing that like cause every time I doubt it or question it, my own mind would turn guilty like against itself. and it was, very, it was like really confusing. It was not comfortable. it was just a bad time in my life but uh yeah and then once i understood like i can be like a good person be forgiving and be honest and without having like guilt trip my own mind that something's in there like tell me to and then like i put that out of my mind like once i quit accepting that this god was in my mind really like maybe come true with like self-knowledge and like in pursuit of it that makes sense
0: The traditional transmission of ethics and virtue and cultural standards has been parents. And that's because most historical ethics and culture have been resolutely denied by reality, right? The the old, you can't get an ought from an is, from from Hume. And so the the real danger and the real challenge for people is if you, because God is a way of transmitting values, I think fundamentally. I mean, there's a lot of it, of course, that is, you know, and give us money and, and Pope needs a new hat or whatever. But there is a lot of be good because God. God good. Just one letter. One letter difference, right? hmm And, you know, the great challenge is since there is no, there are no values in reality. And since the traditional transmitter of values is what is to a, a child and a toddler, all-knowing, all-powerful deities called parents. A lot of times what happens, of course, is it's the baby in the bathwater. So people throw out the deity and they also throw out virtues and values. And then they, you know, they try to run to science and they try to, you know, run to communism or they run to whatever, right? But political correctness or social justice warriors or leftism or rightism or whatever. Although rightism is usually associated with some sort of religiosity. You know, well, yeah. God, God is gone, and and now everything is permitted. The rule giver, the rule maker is gone. And now all is permitted. It's the substitute teacher. You know, you ever have that when you're a kid? The substitute teacher comes in and nobody listens, right? <laughs> Unless they're some terrifying substitute. But most times the substitute teacher is woohoo, you know? Mm-hmm. Everybody just sniffs the mm-hmm. photocopies until they pass out. But... For, for a lot of people because they get their sense of, of virtue and value and meaning and depth and being part of a larger story and having a life purpose and a life message and a life goal that all comes from religiosity.
3: Yeah.
0: And you take that away and they're just looking at bare, bold, uninspiring, empty reality. Stuff. Nonsense. Nothing. A chair. A wall. A cloud. Where's the, good? Where's the good in that? Where's the purpose in that? Where's the grandeur in that? Where's the morality in that? Where's the story in that? Where's my meaning in that? Where's my destination? Where's my goal? How do I know if I'm doing right or wrong? How do I know if I'm good, doing good or bad. The chair doesn't care. The wall doesn't care. The cloud doesn't care. Without a God, we all just become mosquitoes. Drinking blood, making babies, <laughs> and getting smacked occasionally. Where is the virtue? Where is the value? Where is the most important part of the human experience, the dedication to good, to virtue? Where is that? When the lawgiver passes from the land, people cannot comprehend that there is a law. Because law is externalized. Law is reward and punishment. It's carrots and sticks. So for most people, when we say a stateless society... They cannot comprehend it. Without a lawmaker, without a lawgiver, there will be no law. There will be no structure. There will be no roads. There will be nothing. A war of all against all. We will be reduced to mere bald apes. It will be Lord of the Flies. There will be no restraint. We will be feral. It will be brute winds, nature red in tooth and claw. The whole nightmare scenario. And what they're saying is that if someone, te- if someone is not telling me what to do and what is right, I don't exist. I, I, am. I am depressed at the very concept of looking at a world without orders. I would not want to get out of bed in a world without rewards and punishments. The idea that I would evaluate and understand and possibly even generate my own values would be like asking a car to drive itself without a driver. Note to future listeners, this is before there are driverless cars. And so we are told what to do all the time as children. We are told where to go to school. We're told where to play. These days, it's become truly lunatic. I mean, I was walking off to school. I mean, I took trains to go to boarding school when I was six years old. I on the train for hours. I flew with my brother when I was six years old to Africa. We would walk to return pop bottles when I was six or seven or eight years old. When I was eight years old, I was walking, I think about a mile and a half to school. And now, well, I mean, the intrusiveness of uh, the state with regards to Uh, children, even though children are far safer now than they were when I was a child. We now, well, some some woman got child services involved in her life. Some family got child services involved in their lives for years, investigating and evaluating and harassing, because her 10-year-old and her 8-year-old walked a block to go to a park. A woman left her 6-year-old alone for 90 minutes, and her 6-year-old son was taken from her. She lost custody. I'm not saying it's great to leave a six-year-old alone for an hour and a half. But, come on. I mean, the world is much safer than it was when I was a kid. And a degree of paranoia. And this is what I mean. Like, children cannot be left alone. They cannot. The, the way that I grew up as a kid was go away and come back at dinner time. Get out of the house. Go do something. And, of course, home life was incredibly boring. I mean, there was nothing on TV. And... Um, you read i could read of course i could read a devour books I could read a ferocious amount from the library but uh you know you just you go out you have to you have to and you've got no money so you're gonna make up your own games and you'd just be out and you'd be gone and the glorious anarchy of negotiating for what to do with no money this all gone so kids are just ordered from noon to night and and Video games do that too. Here's your goal, here's your objective. It's a little bit of open world stuff for, for some of the kids and so on, but you're still working within the structure of the game. And one of the biggest predictors of uh, intelligence and success as adults for children is what's called real uh, open world play, imaginary world play, creating your own entire world. It's why Dungeons & Dragons was so good for the development of social skills, of entrepreneurship, of intelligence. I just did a podcast on this, so I don't uh, I have to go into it in more detail. Yeah. But ch- people now are so heavily structured. Kids now are so heavily structured. I had a boss I was chatting with who's got teenage kids, and he says, oh, yeah, it used to be, you know, you go out and just go and play in the park, you go to the woods or you whatever. Now, but every time we go out, you got to go out with your kids, and it's always 20 to 40 bucks every time you go anywhere because it's got to be structured. Right? It's got to be Chuck E. Cheese. It's got to be Palladium, It's got to be a movie. It's got to be something that's structured. And this has created personalities with all the internal consistency of a liquid because they're just held in structures all the time so they never need to know their own shape that structure is school that structure is church that structure is video games that structure is media that structure is the entire world you know and as a kid we just we get poured out like liquid into the ground and you you've got to find some kind of shape or you just seep away and so your girlfriend Grew up with some pretty rigid structures, right? I assume she went to yeah. government schools. She went to, she had some exposure to religion and she had dictatorial, or bossy parents, right? Yeah. And she, the idea of living without structure, the idea of, I, I hate to sort of say being the generator of your own values because that sounds kind of Nietzschean and it also is not what philosophy is all about. But the idea of, Thinking through for yourself what you should stand for, what your priorities are, what the story of your life is going to be, what the meaning of your life is going to be. It's very hard. I'm almost done and then I'll I'll be quiet. But this is very hard for people. It's very emotionally difficult. You know, take away the container of water. It's like taking a baseball bat to an aquarium. You just end up with fish flopping on the floor, expiring. So if you strip life from the universe, if you strip consciousness from the skies, if you scour mere matter free of purpose and rules and a structure and a story and a goal, the fundamental organizing principle of prioritization, which is religion, what is going to happen to your girlfriend's personality.
3: It's a good point. So, uh, yeah. So, I don't know if I should. Uh, team, do I want to like, liberate her from, or attempt to like, with, like self knowledge? I guess that would be the first route to go.
0: Ask questions.
3: When? So, from after having this conversation, yeah, this definitely helped. Um, so, do I want to like? God
0: fills my girlfriend's void of, um, you know... And feeds it. Being, yes, right, Because, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but the more... It's like... Um, the the more she surrenders to this imaginary structure, the more liquid she becomes. So it, it, it's a process, right? It, it does not, oh, she's got no liquid. So, but they self-reinforce, right? Yes. So So the, the longer it's lasted, the more challenging it is going to be to undo. And the undoing has very serious personality consequences. But, sorry, go ahead.
3: Yeah, so I don't know if I want to go from here and try to undo that, but, like, try to install or fill it up with, like, her own self-knowledge knowing of her past and knowing why she
0: thinks what she does, or, you know, I don't... Well, you want to get to know her. Yes. I, I think. And religion is part of her. And irrationality is part of all of us. I mean... If I said only hang out with people who are rational, I would not be able to sit in my own skin.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Because
0: I do not follow my values from time to time. I have irrational ideas. I make mistakes. I have my prejudices. I have my biases. I have my confirmation. Like all of these things, right? right? And so the fact that she has irrationalities in no way, shape or form makes her unfit to date. Because there, I don't think there's anyone alive, yeah, maybe in the future, way down the road, but but now I mean it's not it's not really possible, and so if you have an area where you're more rational and she has an area where she's ra- less rational, it's dangerous to only judge the relationship by those two areas, if that makes sense
3: yeah, we try, we don't it gives you a false attitude.
0: positive, it yeah. gives her a false negative, right yeah so. So I would say that just be curious, ask her about, you know, just and you can be honest. Obviously, if, if this is going to be your goal and say, listen, I've been nagging at you about religion and it's been kind of disrespectful for, because I don't I don't really have a full understanding or even maybe even a partial understanding of what it means to you, of how important it is to you. So I would like to talk about religion with you. I wouldn't like to talk about it like Jesus does this for me and God answers my prayers because I'm not religious. But I really would like to understand, without the goal of undoing, but really would like to understand the emotional drivers. I'd also like to understand what it would mean for you if there was no God. Not because you then have to believe that, but I just really want to understand what is driving this for you. And the worst case scenario is you don't change your mind. But I get to know you a lot better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Sounds like a good place to start. Because I was, and I feel like I'm, I am was so focused on like people asking, like, what do you think about God? You know, and then like I get like a name for like kind of being a little knowledgeable. And so people always ask me, what do you think about God? You know, a lot of guys and girls alike. And I sit there and mm-hmm. I, All right, give me my perspective on, like, you know, all the, like, arguments for it. Like, I've read some of your books, like, God of Atheists and all that. So I use some of those, and then some, like, analogies analogies I come up with on my own. And then now I'm in a relationship. I haven't been in four years, so now, like, that's what I turn to. Like, that same nagging, like, here's my argument. Like, what can you accept about it? And now it's, like, more, it's emotional. It's more than
0: just, you know intellectual right right that yeah that would be that would be my you know and of course I mean but I think I still think it's important of course if you're going to get married and have kids in the future that you do have some sort of agreement about what's going to happen with the kids yeah because uh, I still am very strong that you know the kids should not um, be taught that religion is true they should be taught about religion, but they really should make up their uh, own mind as they get as they get older. You say, this is what mom believes, this is what I believe, and so on, right? But that, I think, is, is pretty important.
3: Yeah. I've told her that, and I think she agrees with me. Okay, that, uh, oh, that's good. Yeah, raise them with nothing but, you know, actual, physical, factual, empirical things, and then, you know, tell them about religion, but then if they want to accept it later on in life, and they can you know, begin to understand things or make right. their own choices. Which I love that they can, they can, but later on, they, you know.
0: All right. So is that giving you enough to maybe move forward on?
3: Yeah, I think uh definitely helped a lot because I was just looking at it so intellectual, not emotional. And I guess it's more like I feel, you know, like I definitely have to focus on that because it's like, you know, I'm in a relationship now. Yeah, because I do care about her and see things in her that I haven't in a lot of other girls. So.
0: Right, and the the her religiosity is serving you to some degree in so far as she's got she's practicing all this negotiation, right?
3: Yeah, like she's pretty wonderful, like especially with uh, like caring and kindness, and like, a wish she's around with kids and like she nannies and stuff, and it's like. Where have you been? Like She's so like, <laughs> understanding.
0: Right. Okay, well, do, do give us a chance to let us know how it goes. And, you know, if she's at all interested in calling in, I'd certainly be happy to uh, to yeah. chat with her. And um, um, I'd like to do that. Yeah, I yeah. think it'd be thrilling. So, uh, yeah, keep us posted. And, uh, you know, I hope it gives you something new to chat about. And, you know, we always need a new approach when something really isn't working, right? All right, thanks so much, uh, John. Uh, Very, very uh, interesting chat, and uh, best of luck to you, Beth.
1: Yeah, thanks. Bye. All right, up next is Victor. Victor wrote in and said, I'd like to discuss the concept of marriage and how I find it contradictory to what anarchy stands for. Isn't marriage a monopoly on your partner's choices? Sure, every relationship has rules, but I don't see how marriage is relevant to enforcing those rules. If all parties involved express commitment to each other, how does marriage enhance that? In a healthy relationship, I see marriage as redundant, complicated, and unnecessary.
0: All right. But but tell me how you feel about marriage. Hey, uh, Stefan. Hey, Victor. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Wow,
4: I'm super excited.
0: Well, thanks. Great set of questions. And uh, let's just say that you're not the first person who's had some skepticism about marriage in the history Uh of this show. (laughs) So I, I get it. I really do. And, you know, until I'd gotten married, I would probably be among those. And that doesn't mean anything other than sort of personal admission.
4: I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, first of all, I, I have to praise you a little bit. I, I'm very, very excited to speak with you. I, you've been my role model for uh, for a few years now, and uh, and uh, I'm super, super excited. And I'm I'm deeply honored to to speak with you. So,
0: well, likewise, so it's I appreciate gonna very my, uh, my, Yeah,
4: <laughs> thank you.
0: Tell me a little bit more about um, uh, the the monopoly thing because uh, that that's where my first spider sense started tingling. But tell me more about the uh, monopoly stuff.
4: Mm, okay uh I was thinking that um uh, so I was thinking that if two people commit to be with each other um they um they don't i don't see the necessity of uh of uh, advertising it to 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 the community that they're together by being married i mean if they uh if they're together and they love each other and they decide to be together uh i i see i see it as irrelevant to um to to uh you know to 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 get married and like uh ma- marriage would be just uh, just a little bit redundant if 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 you if both of you want to be together um, then then I don't see how marriage is uh, is is necessary.
0: Okay, but tell me uh, now tell me what you mean by um, by marriage then? Cause it, it, it it's a very complicated word, it shouldn't be, but but it is right insofar as there's you know there's what develops spontaneously, there is religion, there is government, there is property rights, there is divorce court, there's family law there's, so mm-hmm. marriage is not you know it's one of these very bundled terms so what do, what do you mean by marriage
4: well uh i was i mean today today marriage is i guess marriage is necessary today because because we live in the society that we live in and uh you know uh maybe marriage today is uh, used for uh, leg- legal purposes uh for uh, income tax and such um so i mean when i say marriage i guess i'm i'm talking about the traditional sense like the way you are married with your wife in that sense mm-hmm. so um so what difference does it make in your life the fact that you're married is it uh it's probably Good for you for for tax purposes, or if you wanted to to migrate to a different country when you're married, it's a bit easier, as I did.
0: Yeah, that really wasn't what I got one. I didn't get down on one knees with like a a, a tax lawyer and a tax accountant and, you know, an expat specialist saying, you know, well, the experts say that our paperwork will be vastly diminished if you Mm. accept me. Do you have a cell phone? Uh, I do, yes. And are you on a cell phone contract? Yeah. Okay, and uh, what's the term? of? Is it like two or three years or something like that?
4: Yeah, it's like two years.
0: Two years, okay. Now, do you want to upgrade your cell phone? Uh,
4: pers- uh, like uh, For the sake of your question, let's say I did, but uh, not, not really. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not the type of person who change cell phones. I mean, I, I'm satisfied with what I have, but for the sake of your question, let's say that, that I do. I okay. really want to change if my If you phone.
0: could get a free upgrade for your cell phone, would you take it?
4: Um. Uh, Probably. Yeah. Sure.
0: Okay. And so, but you can't because you're limited, right?
4: But they offered if they offered me a, if the company offered me a free phone, yeah, maybe I would take it.
0: Yeah, it's likely, but I assume that you uh, are not allowed to upgrade your cell phone until the end of the two-year contract, right?
4: Or paying the penalty. Yes, correct.
0: You you pay the penalty, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's your answer.
4: Okay. So there's, uh, so marriage. You're is committed
0: a, to your current cell phone because you signed a contract that says I'm going to keep my cell phone for two years, and maybe I can upgrade after that. But but that's that's my cell phone, right? And so what happens is you don't sit there and check the cell phone upgrade path or check. Oh, there's a new cell phone. Maybe I should upgrade to that because you're like, nah, two years. I'm not doing anything, right?
4: Mm, okay, but mm, okay, I see. Um, you know, by the, by the way, I wanted to say that uh, I listened to your um, to your to your uh, recent video about uh, gay marriage, and you talked a lot about marriage, and I agreed with all the points how how important it is for the sake of the child to to for yep. for the adults they owe it to the child to to stay together. And um, and my my point, I'm not against uh, I, I'm against about the part of of two people are in a way. The way you maybe the way you describe it, they're forced to stay together because it removes the, the challenge part from the relationship.
0: Uh, Hang on, wait, wait. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so because you've used monopoly uh, in your original thing and now you, you're sort of bringing the, the F word in, right? <laughs> it's the worst F word around, which is forced, right? Okay. Go force yourself, right? But um, I'm, first of all, we're not forced to stay together. We can get... Divorced, uh, I could wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to divorce you. And she could so, wake up tomorrow and say, She's going to divorce me. We're not so forced you, to stay together. There are consequences to that.
4: If you can get but, divorced. Uh,
0: there's no force, right?
4: If you can get divorced anytime, so why get married in the first place? If
0: marriage is like well, okay. B- we- because. No, let's see. Okay. Let, let, okay. Okay. <sighs> let's. Okay. Would, would, would we agree that it's important to choose the best partner? With whom to raise your children?
4: Um, yes,
0: I'm afraid I'm afraid that's a can't wiggle out of it one. No, this no, doesn't no, no, mean no. I've won anything other than yes. a cheap. No, obvious you're point. absolutely
4: right. But
0: right, but people now, get
4: married without kids too. So but,
0: no, no, okay. yeah, but I get that. But marriage is there because there's children. Okay, right. I mean, it's because because we need two people to invest fifteen to twenty years. I'm talking historically. We need two people to involve, to to basically spend the rest of their lives raising children. Because when did marriage evolve? Marriage evolved when the average life expectancy was like 30 or 40 years old. And you had five or eight kids. Right? So marriage evolved when there was nothing but childbirth going on, basically. Right? And that doesn't mean, of course, that... People who don't have kids can't get married. Sure, they can ride the marriage bandwagon. But if people didn't have kids, there would be no such thing as marriage. And it doesn't mean that people who don't have kids are any less legitimately married or anything like that. But the institution is there because of children.
4: But do you think marriage came before uh, – You know. I, I don't really know the conception of, of the of, of marriage. How marriage came to be exactly? I mean, well,
0: at no, what nobody point does. In but basically, okay. no, nobody does. But basically, the more you can developmentally delay your children, the smarter they'll be. This is uh, this is a biological principle, Mike. If if you can look it up, but I I can't remember what it's called. But basically, children or the offspring, not children, offspring which develop very quickly, are really stupid. I mean, like tadpoles. And Can't. fish, right? They, they come out very self-sufficient. They can go and eat and they can survive. And they're right, the, the turtle eggs and, and all that. They're very self-sufficient. They don't need a lot of protection. Okay. The longer you can delay the maturation of the offspring, the smarter they're going to be. And so what happened biologically and historically was every tribe where a genetic mutation occurred, which delayed the development of the offspring, produced smarter offspring. And we know that intelligence is a very great advantage, biologically speaking, right? And so you needed two things. You needed the, um, the slower development of the children and you needed the – like in conjunction with that, you needed the greater investment on the part of the parents. The, the two together are, are necessary, Right? And so the genes that developmentally delayed the children, I know it sounds kind of contradictory, like developmental delays result in um, faster, like, sorry, result in in greater intelligence, but it's just one of these biological principles. And so what happened was biologically, wherever there was a mutation that delayed the development of human children, and that was combined with an increased investment on the part of the parents, that tribe would become more successful and would spread its genes further. And as it spread its genes, it would spread its culture. And so as the children's delay, the delay of the children got longer and longer, and the culturally transmitted marriage vow, uh, commitment to stay together to raise the children also spread, that's how. It developed. Does that make sense? It's sort of lockstep, one at one and the other.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, okay. Yeah. So so hang on. So so that's sort of how it developed, and that's why I say it's all about it's all about the kids. So the reason why marriage is important—that's the biological reason. Uh, obviously, it's better for the kids. A, a pair bond, a permanent monogamous pair bond, is better for the children. I mean, so there's that facet. But the question is why do we choose to get married well uh, have you lived in more than one place in your life yeah okay have you lived in a bunch of different places or just one or two a bunch of them yeah okay now imagine victor if y- if i told you that the next like you have to move somewhere but where you are going to move to is where you're going to have to live for the rest of your life how carefully would you choose your destination
4: well, I would, ha- I would make sure that place is, uh, is a very free place.
0: <laughs> well, no, but, but a- you would really rack your brains. You'd spend a lot of research time, right? Okay. Yeah. Right? So if I said the next place you live, you have to live for the rest of your life and never leave it, you mm-hmm. would really, really do a lot of research and you'd be very careful about where you live next, right?
4: Yeah, exactly.
0: That is the point of marriage. Okay. It allows, it, it really, quote, forces, I mean, it strongly encourages you to choose the very best person to raise your children with because you are committing for the rest of your life. And so because you're going to move to the city called your spouse and never leave it for the rest of your life, at least that's what you commit to, it encourages a very strong selection standard, very high selection standards for the mother of your children. And so those cultures which said, well, you know, let's get together. The marriage will be renewable every six months. And uh, if you don't like it, you can just walk away. No foul, no penalties, no negatives. Well, people would choose for nice tits, right? People would choose for great abs, nice hair, whatever, right? they choose for stupid shallow reasons that wouldn't have anything fundamentally to do with the quality of parenting. It might have to do with the quality of genes, but it wouldn't have anything to do with the quality of parenting. Whereas if you say you must choose a spouse that you will never leave and you will be monogamous to, that really makes you think carefully, not just about great hair, nice tits, big dick, great abs, but will this person be a good parent? Will this person be with me in my old age? Will they be gentle and kind and caring and nurturing? Or oh, whatever it is, whatever the standards are, right? So when you... So so, it, it's a way of really upping the quality of whoever it is that you're looking for. Now, I use the term quality here kind of loosely, so you know it may be a really good... Um, Mormon. A nice Mormon girl, right? Which, you know, quality is... But it it really does mean that you have to choose more on values than on appearances. And that means that if, if you choose on values rather than appearances, then you have to choose compatible values. And that means that those values are more likely to be stably transmitted to your offspring, because you both share the same values. So it's a way of locking in the values, it's a way of upping the demands for quality, and it's a way of Overcoming the shallow vanity of youthful sexual preference by having a lifelong commitment does does that make it and again I'm not saying this makes it all moral or anything like that but I think that's why it came about
4: well if if you use if you use knowledge for the process of selection uh, uh, selecting a you know a, a partner you, it wouldn't change a thing if marriage existed or not if you Stefan has the knowledge to if you have the, the desire and the knowledge of what it takes to, to raise a child the best way, you, you choose a partner that has similar values as you and maybe similar uh, knowledge. And you both know and agree because you, you, you partnered together. You both know beforehand that raising a child together and be, being together, together while, while raising the child is the best way for the child. You both have the same values and the same the same you have the same you have the same knowledge. You go in with with the same knowledge. So whether a marriage exists or not is irrelevant to you sticking with your wife, not your wife, your partner and being around with a kid. Because you both love each other. You both agree from the beginning and you, you have the knowledge, the scientific knowledge from the beginning that being together is the best thing for the child and you want you want to maximize your investment you want to do the best thing for your child so so the concept of marriage itself is redundant maybe maybe it has a, a romantic value a way of of Oh of, no uh, but
0: so hang on but that I just made a case I'm, I'm maybe i'm like if you because marriage is the commitment to stay together right and be monogamous
4: but you don't need marriage to make the commitment to be together.
0: But 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 you just we, we you're can saying, evolve beyond that. You're saying I want to call the computer an abacus and therefore we don't need the word computer, but it's still the but, same thing no matter what you call we it. We don't right?
4: need a name. We don't need a name for two people being together. We don't need a name for that. Why
0: y- Yes you do. We need a we need a name for a computer. No no no, we of course need. you do. There's a reason why people who are married wear rings or have dots on their forehead because but it's precision.
4: That, that's no, it's yeah, sorry, it's it's,
0: it's, no, it's not superstition. It's monogamy. No, you have tradition. to know who's on the market and who's not, right?
4: Who needs to know? Oh, okay, but
0: like, listen, if you want to sell a house, you put a for sale sign out front, right? But and and you don't sort of stop at people's houses, knock on their door, and say, "I want to buy this house," right? It's not on the market.
4: But if you're with if the the way I'm thinking is that if you're with someone, and that someone meets somebody better than you then whether she's with you or not, it's irrelevant. She needs to live her life to, to she has to maximize the happiness of her life.
0: If, if she's with you... No, no. What do you mean she has to maximize the happiness of her life? And that means trading in a relationship for someone when,
4: new. When you're How, marry the, how her, on
0: earth are you supposed to know if someone new is going to be better than you? Better for you. Like, you're, you're going on these big, that's, like, that's who, how do you know?
4: Uh, well, so let's say, you, let's you say be, I've been married friendship.
0: now for like, 12 or 13 years, right? The idea that I could find someone for me better than my wife is incomprehensible to me.
4: But it is possible.
0: I don't believe that it is.
4: But it's not the best thing for your child, though.
0: No, no. uh, No, you you just missed what I said. I do not believe that it is possible for me to find someone better than my wife.
4: So, okay. But you're saying this romantically. You're saying this...
0: No, I'm saying this rationally.
4: But there are f- 7 billion people... Okay, uh, sorry, that, that's a bad argument. Uh, if, if you, uh,
0: you know... No, because, because of investment. Mathematically because, speaking. Because, yeah. because there's something that I know and something that I don't know. right? And, and what I know is the degree of compatibility mm-hmm. and happiness and In love that my wife and I have with each other.
4: Yeah, you have, okay.
0: Right, that's, that's a known quantity.
4: So, for you, whether so you marry So, how could someone
0: not. be better than 13 years with the person who I love more and more every year? Mm-hmm. Who yeah. I'm incredibly thrilled, honored, and privileged to spend my time with. Mm-hmm. I say, well, there could be someone better. No, there honestly couldn't be because there's just no 13-year history that I have absolute certainty about.
4: Mm-hmm. I mean... We, we could still have rings, okay. Uh, you know, you. I, I don't disagree with anything you said and I, I share the same thoughts of you. Uh, I, I share the thoughts of it's it's best for the child. I just, you know, looking around and I, I see all these people getting married and divorced and I'm thinking like, you know, maybe for us because I'm married as well actually, but for us marriage ma- makes sense. And uh, because, because we, we.
0: I don't think I. You're married and you're arguing strenuously against marriage.
4: But what I'm saying is that wh- whether I was married, whether I'm married or not, it doesn't change the, the behavior I have toward my wife. It, it, that, well, well, know, in which case, there's no harm door.
0: in the word marriage. If nothing changes whether the word is there or not, then there's no harm in the word.
4: Yeah, you're right.
0: Like, you, 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 I think you're fighting a ghost here. I mean, a lifelong commitment to stay with someone, whether you do it under the covers, privately, or whether you do it in a Kardashian-style giganto wedding, the commitment is the commitment. Now, whether you... So, two people who, who don't get a marriage license, but who have fully committed to staying with each other. I mean, so... I don't care about the license. It doesn't matter. The public, and I think in general it should be a public declaration for reasons I've gone into before, but if they make that public declaration and they're fully committed, yeah, they're married. Uh, I mean, the piece thinking, of paper yeah. is is the government thing, right? And, and yeah. you know, but but in a free society, don't get me wrong, in a free society, there would be a piece of paper as well. I mean, the idea that you have a piece of paper with your cell phone, but not with the mother of your children or the father of your children, there would be strictures and structures around marriage. Now, the question as to why, why are so many people getting divorced? Well, that is a very interesting, big and deep question, which I can only very touch on briefly well, I know, here.
4: I know the, but answer, the ba- but, Basically,
0: yeah. the reason why so many people are getting divorced.
4: Because they have no philosophy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, that's that's partly it, but uh, you know, it's not like people in 1950 had a huge amount more philosophy. They had more values in many ways, but the reason that people are getting divorced is because there's almost no social stigma involved in it anymore, because people don't give a flying fuck about kids anymore. It's all become this baby boomer navel gazing, selfish narcissism, and. People face no social stigma. In the past, if you got divorced, you were gone from society, baby. You were gone, gone, gone. Your friends would vanish. You'd not be invited to any social gatherings anymore. And you'd just tumble down the stairs of social disapproval until you landed in the basement. And what happened was, when the government came along and said, oh, we'll handle it all for you, people were like, whew, great. Now we don't have to enforce any social standards, which can be uncomfortable, you see.
4: I love the video you made about uh, Danton Abbey. I I couldn't agree with it more. Uh, Yeah, and this is how, I mean,
0: you you either have social rules enforced horizontally or you have bizarre, fiat-funded, crass dictatorships imposed vertically. I mean, people need rules. Sorry, it's just the way life is. People Mm -hmm. need rules. Everybody likes that. I mean, you don't want to rent an apartment, move in, and they have the rent triple next month. You want a contract. You want a lease. It's going to be the same in a free society. And the contract which creates new human life and sustains and nurtures new human life is going to be there in a free society. Free society isn't going to be some giant narcissistic communist love pit of endless orgies. Free love. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Your philosophy is so good, you have to throw in a side order of endless vaginas just to make it worthwhile. <laughs> You and the suicide bombers, right? So you have to uh, there're going to be all these rules and structures. And if somebody gets divorced, if, I mean, if you get divorced before you have kids, uh, you know, what do they call it these days a starter marriage. Yeah, I was married in my 20s for two years. It was a starter marriage. OK, no kids. Bad decision, you know, big waste of cake, but whatever, right? But but yeah, once there are children. You you're getting divorced for for one of two reasons. Either a, you married a monster, and you had children with a monster. But that's your well, fault. Well, well, and and you you now have. Child, you've got the child of Chucky, right? You got you got monster kids. So you created children with that's a necessary. monster. Okay. And. Well, unless you can get the monster thrown in jail, in which case they're growing up fatherless, or the monster is not in jail but is floating around and co-parenting, in which case he's going to mm. be influencing the kids. Nobody's going to like you for that. Yeah. Oh, you, 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 you dated, you got engaged to, you got married to, and you had children with a, with a so, man or a so, woman who's a total monster, so you're a and monster now we've got to deal with your kids when they grow up, and all of the negative effects of that. But only so a monster I'm not happy with you young man or young lady for doing all of that and, you know, bad, 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 right? Or you got married and the guy is not a monster. You just, you got restless. You got bored. You felt dissatisfied. Well, screw you and the shallow self-absorbed horse you rode in on. You know, don't bust up an entire family and screw up your kids just because you're a little bored. God almighty, how ridiculous is that? And how harmful and selfish is that? Right, so what are the good reasons for getting divorced? Well, I don't know. Your husband, uh, a railway spike accidentally goes through his head and changes his entire personality. I'm sorry. That's a pretty good reason to get divorced. You have my sympathy. But wanting out of something you voluntarily got into when there are children involved, nobody made you get married. Nobody made you have kids. Now suddenly it's, oh, it's terrible. terrible. My sympathy is not the highest, is not the greatest. My sympathy for the kids is enormous. But we don't have those standards anymore. Now it's like, oh, you're divorced. I guess it didn't work out, now did it? Well, that's too bad. Or good for you for not putting up with an unsatisfying relationship. Putting up with, putting up with, God Almighty. You put up, With cancer, you deal with cancer, you you choose to get married. It's not inflicted on you. Or, he just changed. He was great, and then he just changed. Yeah, well, apparently one of the most stable things in the entire universe is human personalities, so I very rarely believe that at all.
4: But I think most people go into unsatisfactory uh, relationships, until they listen to your show, they they listen to your show and they realize, they realize that, you know, they they acquire a new set of of, uh, of principles, and they realize that their marriage is a disaster based on the principle that that you present. And, you know, the way I see it is that m- m- most people get married or get paired with with uh, with uh, w- with another person ba- based on uh, on based on nothing based on attraction physical attraction or or how many people out there get together with 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 the with the right with the right mindset with the with the right formula not not formula I don't have the words but with, with no, the
0: right No a lot of people do right oh, No listen a lot of people do a lot of people do Do you know how much pressure Jewish women are under to marry Jewish men Mhm Right do you think a lot of Muslim but men want to date Amish women? Are they happy? No, 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 but, but I, I'm happy, I don't know. I don't know, but what I'm saying is that the idea that you marry compatible values is only lost to the secular left. And those secular leftists, I mean just look at the quote diversity in academia. Are you far left or far far left? Okay, you're in. Right? Anyone towards the center or to the right? Forget it. You're never getting it. Look at newsrooms. 90, 95% of news people in Washington voted Democrat in the last election. No diversity there. <laughs> These guys are all into diversity. <laughs> right. It's too funny. But the idea that that you, that that you hang with people with like values is everywhere practiced and everywhere denied almost everywhere except in religious communities yeah mormons will say yeah i want to marry a mormon jews will say yeah marry a jew marry similar values i
4: meant to say everywhere. healthy
0: values i'm sorry
4: i meant to say values that 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 are based on uh, on happiness on on personal happiness because that isn't the whole point of philosophy or of life is to to maximize your happiness why do you treat kids better it's because you want it's because you, you, you want your kids to, to be your best friends when they grow up. You want to be happy. You want to be happy with your kids. You want your kids to make you happy when you're older. So, so.
0: Oh, so the, you're saying that philosophy is, is sort of maximum hedonism? Sorry? You're saying philosophy is maximum hedonism?
4: Hedonism? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that.
0: Happiness, like the, 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 the happiness yeah. is the goal. I think Socrates uh, you and his think drink about of hemlock that? might disagree. I think that uh, it's, uh, Spinoza being banished by the Jewish community for questioning God might uh, disagree. I think that uh, Galileo pursuing the philosophy of science might uh, disagree. Uh, I could sort of go on and on, but I think the number of people who've suffered enormously for the cause of truth might disagree that philosophy's goal is maximum happiness.
4: The, the I mean, uh, how do you see this? Um, you know to me, philosophy was a tool to to increase my happiness. Ever since I discovered philosophy with your help, I became a happier person because I see things for what they are, I, or I think I do. I, I see uh, my vision is clearer and clearer. Yes. and the more time passed, the more I see things for what they are. And mm-hmm. that's all thanks to philosophy, which made me happier. And it also uh, philosophy helped me to To find better relationships in my life, so right. if I were single, I would look for a wife based on the values that I acquired from philosophy, and those values um, are all toward my happiness, are all the are all aligned toward my happiness, my personal happiness. So, so w- yeah, but w- that's
0: because you are a consumer of philosophy, not a spreader of philosophy, right? So I the am people that I'm talking about I a spreader. were spreaders. I'm, I'm a
4: spreader as well. I am a spreader oh, okay. as well. All right. I, I talk about philosophy. I challenge people. I go into heated arguments. I, you know, that's how I filter through people. Who, 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 can, uh, who can be in my circle of, uh, of acquaintances? It's someone who has critical, uh, critical thinking. I challenge them. Philosophy for me is a filter to get, to get, connect, to get closer to people. Are they, are they able to, to how, how do they respond to, to philosophy? That's how I filter them. So
0: it's, well, it's I apologize, great. it was uh, it was unjust of me to say that you're a consumer, but uh, um, okay, so um. happiness, obviously, and this is a big topic, obviously a big abstract topic, but philosophy is certainly involved in, in happiness, but it's hard to judge where that sort of maximum happiness is, so to speak,
4: mm-hmm.
0: uh, In insofar as, you know, philosophy might bring you into massive conflicts and then you get hit by a bus. Right, and then your last six months were not that much fun, or whatever, right? How is that? Okay. what do you mean? No, by no, that? in Sorry. the same way that um, that uh, you know, if, if you're overweight, you want to lose weight. You might, you know, have an unpleasant diet and exercise regime, and then get hit by a bus, right?
4: But philosophy is not unpleasant at all. It's, it's, it's I don't see how. How is philosophy unpleasant? How, how is that a chore?
0: So philosophy has uh, not caused any problems in your personal or familiar relationships.
4: Well, it detoxicated me from the from people that were poison to me. That 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 was an excellent thing, and it wasn't as painful as, as maybe for some people. But but it's for me. It, maybe it's because of my character, or my personality. But for me, it was a very enlightening experience. It 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 changed me completely. I'm not the same person I was five years ago, and it's and I didn't go through a lot of hardship. Maybe some others do, but personally, myself, I didn't. I don't know, maybe you did, Um, but... um, I I don't know. Maybe uh, you can uh, give me an example.
0: Sorry, of the relationships that you had five years ago, um, how many of them uh, have uh, survived into uh, where you are now?
4: Well, um, most of them. However, I, I don't sacrifice myself to them anymore. The relationship that there are relationships that I don't feel, uh, op- uh, I have no obligations toward them anymore. So I, I um, so they're really, even even though they're shallow, they're shallow, I, I, they were always shallow from the beginning, but now I can pinpoint and and call them the right, like I know exactly what they are. It, it shone light on them. And although some people are, are, are still around me and always will, uh, I have it's stress free for me because I don't feel like I owe anybody anything anymore. I only owe to those that make me happy because I want to keep their company. So, so, so it pleases me to please them.
0: Right. Okay. So, uh, for for a lot of people, when they dig into philosophy, it's more of a challenge to their personal relationships. But you have maintained your personal relationships, so it's less a uh, less of a challenge for you. I sort of I understand that.
4: Well, it, it's not like I had strong relationships before philosophy. It's not like I had, you know, so, so I, I didn't really divorce. Um,
0: right, but, but not much has changed. And I'm not making that a critical okay. point. I'm just trying to differentiate it for other okay, people. Okay,
4: right? that, that's fair. Yes, that's fair.
0: And that's correct. Right. So, so I, so, say, I yeah. mean, if nothing has really changed other than you've gained some personal advantages but have maintained the shallow relationships you've always had, mm-hmm. then it's not that much of a challenge, right?
4: But even if I lost some relationships, how would that be, you know, if you... If you realize that the relationship was uh, was 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 unhealthy, how would that be a sacrifice? How how, how is it a sacrifice to get rid of, uh, I'm of not, a bad See, hat?
0: I've not used the word sacrifice. You're introducing new terms here.
4: Or how is it? Well, you know, you you gave the example of uh, losing weight, of going on a diet. So I'm referring a little bit to that.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying is. Um, that you have a hard time understanding if people won't accept shallow relationships and want to have deeper, meaningful relationships and perhaps lose relationships they may have had for many years from that, I think you can understand that that would be a painful process, right?
4: hmm Yeah. It would um, be? Um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if, uh, you know, if... I mean, you know, people, let's say, they they had a certain relationship with their parents... And after philosophy, they realize that their parents abuse them. Um, you know, they, to me, they don't have to cut the relationship with their parents. They just have to, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they just have to stop sacrificing themselves to the relationship. You don't. I don't see. I don't see it necessary to cut the relationship completely. I mean, you could if you wanted to, if that made you happy. But maybe for maybe if, you know maybe some some people went so far but i never i, I never f- felt that i need to basically. yeah that's what i'm trying to say i, I never f- felt that i need to terminate any relationships and in that in that in that way you write when you said that i n- not a lot sh- have changed for me you write about that so i, I didn't um, you know, I I, I didn't make uh, drastic changes in my life because of philosophy. Although, um, although it it you know now I'm being repetitive, but it it made me happier and it uh, it it uh, it helped me to see m- the relationships I had for what they really are, and uh, without the need for me to to do anything drastic like. S- some some shallow, some relationships I had were were terminated, but I didn't feel any pain from that at all.
0: Um, Wait, yeah. so you did terminate some relationships, but you felt no pain?
4: But they, they were very shallow relationships. They were just, you know, very, you know, like like less important acquaintances, or you know, I I'm maybe I, maybe philosophy helped me to be happy and uh, to be happy with myself. Sorry and to and, and I e even when i you know i can spend a whole day by myself and uh and w- without feeling lonely and uh it's like i it connected me with myself with my emotions
0: with my uh, and do you with, have, with myself uh, uh, you know sorry you were talking about uh deep versus shallow relationships uh, what about your relationship with your wife is that uh, would you characterize that as deep or shallow uh,
4: it's it got much deeper since I discovered uh, philosophy.
0: And how is she with philosophy?
4: Um, for her sake, I, I'm not going to go into those details. I'm very sorry.
0: No, no, don't apologize. I, That's perfectly fair. She's not here. so I,
4: Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about my relationship with her without her consent. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe I'll call, maybe I'll talk to her and maybe we can call back together. In the future,
0: I certainly would be curious.
4: But I can uh, definitely give you general answers. If there answers, is
0: a way to have nothing but positive experiences with philosophy, I no, would no, certainly no, no, like no. to know more You're about it. right. It,
4: it was it wasn't like it wasn't a smooth sailing. It wa- it. Uh, th- philosophy made our relationship stronger because because I, I, I uh, there was some confrontation on some subjects, and but but luckily for me, I, I didn't. Sh- uh likely for me she she she's she was intelligent enough to to listen to have a conversation to 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 really think about it rationally and uh and it, it was you know I, I could have easily ended with a different person because when i you know when when, when i united with my wife i didn't you know i I, cons- I consider myself at the time very very mature i was very mature and it was just a strike of luck that I, I ended up with my wife, which we've been together for over 10 years, and I, I'm very, very happy with her. But it was I think that maybe not everybody's as lucky as me. and if and the, the original subject is that if I were married with her and she and I would discover philosophy and she wouldn't connect to the philosophy she she wouldn't be open to the conversation to, of, of philosophy. Then I, then maybe I would be compelled to find, to, to, to find something else. Yeah, uh, sorry, not something else to, to, to find a different partner. And the fact that I was married beforehand, it would vastly complicate my life. So, so I agree with, with everything you said about marriage and two people being together and the ring and all that, but it requires such a high level of maturity and. It's like you need to take maybe an exam before you get married <laughs> you know there there should be some kind of uh no, there shouldn't be anything sorry, I take that back but but so few people do it the right way that I wonder whether it's it's a positive positive thing or a negative thing in society in general for you for you I have absolutely no doubt that it's it's a very very natural, very positive thing, but for many maybe for many others maybe i'm wrong maybe like you said maybe a lot of couples are are perfectly fine together but uh but i don't know many people that 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 understand and embrace philosophy the way i do and you do uh, most people they're together based on based on maybe uh cultural values but they're not together based on uh philosophical values like ba- based on you know uh being able to to open up to each other and communicating their feelings. Uh, in your opinion, how, ma- how many couples communicate their feelings, in, in your opinion? or
0: Oh, I don't know. I think we're, we're drifting topics here. But I, I just wanted to mention that, um, yes, if, uh, if uh, philosophy doesn't really disrupt your personal relationships, then it certainly is a lot more comfortable. And I can certainly understand where you're coming from, from, uh, from that standpoint and uh, so i just really wanted to yeah point it out that if uh, uh if um you know if if you as you characterize them if you have shallow relationships and you continue those shallow relationships and uh, uh it is going to be easier but i think for other people I, I mean whether you admit it or not is is not particularly relevant but for other people who go further or deeper into that uh, then it does become more disruptive now in that greater disruption there is greater capacity for growth and connection but um uh, I think that uh, it's important. It may, may be helpful for you to understand that not everyone has the same sort of set of standards or experiences of philosophy uh, that you do. But um, all right, thanks you very much for your call. I appreciate it. Very, very enjoyable and a great set of questions, uh, Victor. I really do enjoy the Thank topic so much, of marriage. Thank, Thank you, you so man. Much. Take care. Bye
1: bye. All right. Up next is Bob. Bob wrote in and said, Why is it that the most creative people who go to the collegiate arts, tend to be very statist, i.e. film-slash-theater majors. And we've talked a little bit about that on the show. But there's a, a follow-up question. How much of creativity is learned or developed, and how much of it is innate?
5: Hello?
0: Yes. Hello. Uh,
5: oh, hello. Um, yeah, so uh, first, thank you for... Uh, sorry, I'm a little nervous.
0: <laughs> oh, no, But sorry.
5: Um, thank you for... Uh, doing the show but more importantly thank you for uh being a stay-at-home dad just just from like my own just from my own experience um my dad was a stay-at-home dad and i can tell you that when your daughter grows up she'll be very fond of the time that
0: she spent with you oh yeah it's a it's a huge pleasure and it's something i feel just immensely grateful for yeah uh, every uh, every day so yeah, thank you and i you know if you can do it i highly recommend it yeah, it makes a big difference. But um,
5: yeah, so this, this question kind of um, comes from a, well, the follow-up question comes from a uh, discussion I was having with my mom. We were talking about creativity and where it comes from and, you know, are people just innately creative or, um, you know, is it a skill that you have to learn? I was more on the skill you have to learn since I'm, I consider myself a creative person. Even though, like, I understand that doesn't really describe anything. It's like saying I have hands, but um, yeah. So I just want to have a little discussion about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that anybody succeeds in a creative field without a huge amount of work, and I think that is really something to to understand. I, I, I've got a podcast out there called Screw Talent. And I thought I, I do get that to some degree. There are some innate things that you need for certain kinds of success. I mean, obviously, if you want to be a a model, you have to be good looking, and if you want to be a singer, you have to have a good voice. And I think that having lengthy fingers probably helps with certain musical instruments. And you know, there's things like that. Right. Um, and uh, you know, erectile dysfunction and being a porn star probably not going hand in hand. Uh, unless you're willing to face plant into a bowl of blue pills, so I do think that uh that there are some innate things that uh, are are necessary. I also think that it's it's oddly helpful to look the part hmm. and and that doesn't always mean good looking it just means look the part i I do sometimes wonder if Einstein hadn't looked like a crazy scientist, whether he'd be as famous i mean I'm, i obviously his contributions to physics were were staggering and amazing and all that but I think it helps to look the part, you know, like the devilish look that Christopher Hitchens had, the uh, the uh, the genial uncle that uh, Richard Dawkins has, Um, you know, the the looking the part has, I think a lot. If if you fit into people's sort of stereotypes, I think it works pretty well. You know, you're not going to get Danny DeVito playing Gandalf. Right. Although he would do a fine job. He's a great actor. But looking the part, I I remember seeing Jumanji with a friend of mine's kids a number of years ago. It's a Robin Williams film. And he's like, well, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to playing an action hero because he doesn't look like Harrison Ford or or, uh, any of these kinds of uh, guys, right? Right. And so there is a certain amount of success if you look the part, whatever that part is, you know, mad scientist or... You know, Richard Branson, I mean, doesn't he look like a pirate? And uh, he just sort of has that air about him. And uh, I think that looking the part can be really helpful. You know, accents aren't the worst thing to have in the world in these kinds of... I know, not the worst things in the world to have in these kinds of environments. So there are certain factors to success that are important. Uh, And, you know, they don't sort of necessarily um, make it or not Uh, but um, there's something that Dennis Miller said Um, he said um, he said he's exactly the same as all of his writers except he has really thick hair and that's why he's in front of the camera right and and I you know the Beatles all had hair all the way through their life right I mean I don't know how old Paul McCartney is but he had that song uh, when I get old uh, losing my hair many years from now uh, when I'm 64, I don't know how, he's got to be closer beyond that now. Guy's still got thick hair and all that. So, Whereas men at work, they all started losing their hair in their 20s or whatever when band broke up. If you have that, <laughs> that sort of, that uh, Brian May giant pot scrubber hairdo, you know, you just want to gel it and spin a pot on it to clear out all of your mashed potatoes. I mean, you have that, uh, that kind of stuff uh, as well. Do you have the look? Uh, do you have the way i mean sting great singer great songwriter great musician but you know ridiculously pomo devilish good-looking guy mm. uh, brimstone and treacle is where he really plays that up in a movie so if you have a kind of look that works and that fits then um it uh, it, it really does add i think and, and help in your success uh, there's a german singer Nina Hagen, we are going to another disco, disco after disco. And, I mean, she just looks like a high cheekbone freak from another planet. And if you see, you know, super skinny, dueling eyeball David Bowie when he was younger, I mean, he really looks that freaky vampire alternative part. And, I mean, you could sort of go on and on. But if you look at the icons, Andy Warhol looks, you know, like uh, a slightly disoriented Beck. And, um, so the, all of that kind of stuff is, uh, is important. Do you, do you look the part, uh, of the rock star? Do you look the part of the scientist? Do you look the part of the entrepreneur? Do you look the part? And, um, uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's been fantastic. I mean, what an incredible gift it was for me to not keep my hair, you know, as a damn fine looking young man with the hair. I mean, I think I look fine now, but uh, I think I would have been tempted into a very shallow player kind of, uh, uh, temptation with, uh, with all of that. So a lot of the stuff that was important for me has a lot to do with, uh, losing, uh, uh, physical vanity. And, uh, boy, there's nothing like, uh, looking at yourself in 1080p under bright lights with no makeup to, uh, <laughs> to help diminish your physical vanity and all that. But, um, I think there is a lot that goes in into success, and uh, the the question is, you know, sort of, are you marketable kind of thing. And um, it's not obviously as important for writers and and all of that, but uh, if you've got any kind of public face, it really uh, matters uh, to 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 a big to a large degree. You know h- how you look. So um, yeah, I, I think probably there is certain life circumstances that give people the raw material for creativity. Uh, I was always reminded that if the number of great writers who were sickly as children, Robert Louis Stevenson uh, was was one of them who comes to mind, who spent a lot of time in bed. And of course, you know, back in the day, no tablets, no TVs, no computers, no internet, no nothing. I mean, you just, you you write. You write a lot of stories. I remember when I was uh, 11 or 12, uh, I would write space operas for my friends and I to act out because, you know, we were bored and I learned, you know, blowing into a microphone makes a good explosion sound. And uh, we would, I would write all these space stories and uh, uh, we'd, we'd act them out and it'd be quite a lot of fun. And um, of course, Dungeons and Dragons was, was sort of big storytelling. But that had a lot to do with just growing up broke, you know, no money uh, and uh, no, nothing on TV. There was like one hour of cartoons a week that we used to watch, I think Sundays, sort of five o'clock. There'd be an hour of Looney Tunes cartoons or occasionally I'd watch these bizarre Japanese space, sp- space star blazers or something. Our star blazers. And I'd, sort of never, I'd never see the end of it because it ended at nine and I had to get to school. So I'd never miss the last 10 minutes. But, um, you know, these weird Japanese things where most people look like people except for some people who look like the complete opposite of people. Uh, probably those are the writers in school and their own self-image and all that. But, so there was precious little to do and we had no money at all and so for me reading was a big thing because I could at least go to the library and I would go to the library and I would just sit there and I would read and I would read and I would read also not wanting to be home because home life was a mess so not wanting to be home also kept you out of the house and you had to find stuff to do and uh so you would uh find interesting stuff to do and so there was a lot of that stuff Uh, I wasn't um sick as a child I had asthma when I was very young but uh uh, I was never really sickly uh, as a child, but my my limitation was just no money, no money for anything, and uh, and and because of that, you you, I mean, I would write stories. I would, I made dioramas. Um, I don't think people even know what those are anymore. Now that there's like free <laughs> autocad or something, but dioramas is where, you know, if you want to create an an African a scene from an, an African jungle. Then what you do is you, 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 you get a big flat piece of cardboard and all that, and then you, you draw and cut out the animals, and you, you tape them, and then you fold them up, and you make trees, and you, you make a whole sort of 3D jungle. And, you know, it takes forever. It's pretty complicated. The amount of, of incredible origami complexities that we would put into something as simple as making paper airplanes. I mean, if you came up with a new and better way to make a paper airplane, I mean, you were like a living god among the young. Uh, I, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to make a paper biplane because, as I mentioned, we had no money. And so the amount of sort of inventiveness and creativity that you have to come up with when, and I i, I think about this with regards to my own daughter, you know, just uh, um, what it's like for her with this the excess of, of, and that's why we I try and, give her, you know, like, we'll make up stories, we'll, we'll, you know, we games, we explore the house, like, we're exploring a new planet and stuff. Like, I really want to give her that sort of imagination stuff, because I think that's a risk with uh, the sort of easy entertainment of a lot of the sort of modern media. So I think that there are situations which can provoke and stimulate creativity. Creativity is like this resentful scar tissue of the wounds of early life, because I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, if we'd had more money, or if it had any money for that matter, I'd have been really happy. I mean, I, I just remember having to ask people on the street for a bus fare to go someplace because I wanted to meet friends with no money, right? And so I resented all of this at the time, but all the stuff which can, is annoying at the time or, or feels hugely limiting at the time, I think in the long run can turn out to have enormously beneficial aspects to it. Again, it's not like we want to inflict that for the sake of potential future creativity, but um, I think that uh, there are certain limitations that – certain personalities, like certain personalities, they, they hit limitations and they stop. You know, like um, you know, like a car comes up to a wall. It you, they can't go around. It just has to stop, right? It has to back yeah, up I, or whatever, right?
5: I, I get what you mean by that. Like, yeah, but
0: there are other personalities where they hit limitations and they spread around them. And it's that spread around – ness that I think drives a lot of, uh, of creativity. And, and it, because what it does is it starts to accumulate those 10,000 hours. And I know that that's somewhat controversial, but you know, this argument that the Beatles became the Beatles because they played for eight or 10 hours a day in Hamburg, they got so bored of doing the songs that they knew that they started to write their own songs. And, you know, in, in a year or two in Hamburg, they, they did more live music than most bands achieve in, across their entire career uh, and so on. So, all of this stuff uh, is, is just to say that I don't think the talent is innate, but I do think that there are certain personalities that are more easily stopped than others. I don't know if that's willpower or not. Because I'm not a personality that's easily stopped, I don't want to ascribe it all to my personal virtues, because I, I don't think that that's fair. Uh, because that would be to say, well, I just did it right, and other people... I, I don't know the degree to which it may be innate or not. Or because I had a sense of how much I could conceivably accomplish, there was really little point in stopping, right? I mean, if you have a four-octave range, you don't sing up an octave and then just stop because you can go higher. So, I mean, just if you have a particular physical capacity, that is going to increase your ambition. Whereas those who have that physical capacity who, um, who then say, well, you know, I was just ambitious. It's like, well, yeah, but you were ambitious because you had this physical capacity called high IQ or whatever. And you didn't want to waste it or you knew you could do it or whatever, I mean, when I sort of sat down eight years ago or whatever it was to eight or nine years ago, I said, I'm damn well going to work out this problem of ethics. I mean, that was because I'd spent years reading, writing, studying philosophy, history, uh, art, and all that kind of... I mean, it just, I really felt like I could do it. And I think I did. So, but, but that was the result of a huge amount of... I mean, even back to Dungeons and Dragons, playing particular ethical conundrums out in, in the alignment sort of lawful good, lawful evil, and that kind of stuff. So I think... I'm sorry for this long ramble, and I'll shut up now because uh, your kids sort of go on all day on on this topic. But I think that uh, I, I, the innateness of stuff is is always troubling to me because uh, it it challenges things like free will, moral responsibility, and so on. I do recognize that the studies seem to say that certain personality types seem to be somewhat innate. Working with my own daughter's personality has been really fascinating in in that regard, seeing what's innate and what's adjustable. But I do think that there are certain circumstances that generally are perceived as negative at the time that create strengths. I, I've said this before on the show, and it's the last thing I'll say before I show which is I read a story many, many years ago. Um, my mom was away, my brother was away, and I spent the summer with a friend of mine's grandparents. And uh, he was actually my first friend I made in Canada. A Really, really nice guy. We used to spend our... Um, we used to spend our... Uh, Recesses, just walking around the playground and, and chatting. A sweet guy, really nice guy, died. Oh, just tragically, just he just had a heart defect and uh, just died in his sleep when he was uh, after I'd known him for about a year. Uh, and I have these memories of being at his house and just gone, just never came back. And um, all of these uh, challenges can help in terms of uh, developing people's creativity and their resistance and so on. I think there's some innate stuff. I tend to focus more upon environment because obviously there's more that we can do about that. And um, I think we are a long way of knowing what's innate because I think people's environments are still so tragic in so many ways. So I think we work to improve people's environments, see where they end up. So, yeah, talent, I think, is a, is, it's one of these terms that's just so vague and such a catch-all. I think that it obscures more than it clarifies. I think there's just no substitute for uh, limited limitations, spreading around your limitations, and finding new avenues, and just working uh, as hard as you can. Does Does that make any sense?
5: Yeah, that, that actually makes uh, quite a bit of uh, sense, and actually touches on some of the things that I wanted to talk about with the uh, development of creativity. Um, I had I had always thought that. Um, that creativity, the ability to do free thinking, um, was something that developed in childhood. And then, of course, I have to take that from my own, from my own personal experience. I had like a very free, open childhood, and so did my brother. And we both had very different, um, different personalities. Like, like you said, like personality does make a difference. Um, and but we both ended up very creative because our parents gave us the tools that we needed that we wanted the incentives but when my brother went uh got into you know a little older he kind of stopped with his music but i continued on with my art until today you know until current time and and so like i i think personality does does make quite a bit of difference with that and um i agree with that but I'm not. I'm not sure. I can't really relate to like the scar tissue aspect of it, um, that that you mentioned.
0: But it is interesting. well. Some of it was scar tissue, and some of it was just limitations. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't think that being poor, growing up poor, was not traumatic. It was frustrating, obviously, at times, and and it it did provoke some envy in me for just about all the other kids who had decent money, right? I mean, we were getting eviction notices at times and I was worried about ending up on the street and just oh, wow. just really broke. Like, broke to the point where it's like there's nothing to eat at home. i I got to hang around friends' places looking pin and uh, thin and pinched around supper time hoping that they'll throw me a bone or two. Like, a really, really poor for a long time. And uh, that is... Um, there were some aspects of that that were certainly traumatic in, in terms of, like, fearing homelessness and stuff like that. Uh, that was more so after we came to Canada, things were a bit more stable in England. We were still broke, but I wasn't fearing any of that kind of stuff. Right. But uh, I don't think that the poverty was was not traumatic. Um, but because, because, you know, if, if you're relatively comfortable and, you know, you compare what's called poor now to what was actually poor like 100 years ago, and it's night and day. So relatively comfortable. Um, so I I think that the limitations of poverty were more of a challenge to stimulate the imagination. And I tried a lot of different things. I was a big painter for a long time. I remember walking home from school one day and there was a house that was being torn down. And in the front was a giant white door. And I picked up with my sturdy eight-year-old frame, I picked up this door and dragged it home so that I could finally have a canvas big enough for me to realize my, my vision as a, as a painter or whatever. Right? And I did... Painted half the damn thing with like just a wide variety of you know what I thought were going to be wonderful nature scapes, but which turned out to be depressingly bland, yeah. daubed paint. Oh, that's that's a horrifying thing, you know. When you're when you're a kid, or I guess any time. Right?
1: Oh yes, and, know,
0: I, I remember. I remember being in uh, when I was in in kindergarten. I guess uh, four or five years old, and I remember um, they had the construction paper and these paints. And these paintbrushes. And I wanted to do I've mentioned this before in the show, and I wanted to do this picture of a kid going down on a toboggan, a snowy with rosy cheeks, a snowy hill, rosy cheeks, his hair from, and, and scarf flying in the wind and all that. That was just what I had in my head. And of course, you know, I've got this ham fist of a four year old and I've got these uh well, I guess we'll bring Brian May's hair back in for the thickness of the paintbrushes and uh, you know, these kid paints and they're just like here is Big Circle on thing that looks like a sideways J with white splashed underneath. And I just couldn't get anywhere close to the kind of detail in, in the picture in my head. And the weird thing was, for me, is that I really completely recognized this crazy gap between what I wanted in my head and what I was actually able to paint. And I remember even as a kid thinking, I'm never going to get there. It's the same thing. Like, I played guitar for a while. I did piano. I played 10 years of violin when I was a kid and uh, I was in an orchestra and so on. And I remember, you know, there were some older people. I mean, I was still a kid, right? Some older teenagers who were really good. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to be able to do that. It was the same thing with guitar. You know, I learned like four songs or whatever and then, and, and tried to reproduce various bass lines. And I, you know, fiddled around with the guitar for about six or, or eight months. And um, I remember, you know, then you sort of, you hear David Gilmore and you're like, I'm never getting there. <laughs> I'm never, I'm never ever going to get there. Now that's of course a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but nonetheless, I think it's important for me, you know, because first of all, you have to want it, you know, the old Brian Adams song. i got my first real six string at the five and dime, played it till my fingers bled. You know, I have to want it to the point where you're going to put crazy glue on your fingers like uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan just to go back and play another set. You have to want it that much. dude. And I just didn't want it that much. Right. And, um, for a lot of things, I'm like, oh, I'm never, you know, never gonna, never gonna get there. Now, with philosophy, I've never really felt that, right? So, it's not like some basic insecurity where I'm like, well, solve the intractable 5,000-year-old problem of secular ethics. Well, I'm never gonna get there. I'm like, no, I'm gonna get there, right? I gotta get there. And that, so, you know, those limitations uh, was, you know, obviously, Eric Clapton felt about the guitar the way I feel about philosophy, or David Gilmour, or whoever, you know, is your favorite. Lenny Kravitz, whoever's your favorite guitarist. Dweezil Zappa. So this, um, where, where your ignition is, is really unusual for and, and widely spread across the population. And I wonder if kids find their ignition as much, again, with the sort of media stuff that we've been talking about recently on the shows. I don't know the degree to which kids find their ignition point anymore, because I think there are so many distractions. Um, right. So um, anyway, that's just another ramble. But uh, so uh, you don't you don't have to be traumatized to to be creative. But I do think that you have to be in an environment where you have to generate internally something which in many ways you would rather have provided externally. Right. right? So I think of Robert Louis Stevenson as a kid stuck in bed year after year he's got to start creating something he's going to go mad right and there was nothing you know there probably were like five books in the village or whatever and so he started writing stories because he wanted something to be provided externally but there wasn't anything being provided externally and our inner resources rise to meet a world that is short of stimulus and that's why this i think this crazy external stimulus world that kids grow up in these days is leaving them kind of short on internal generation and imagination. It's a complete cliche. And I get that it's been said about television and it's been said about movies and now the new thing is video games. But nonetheless, I mean, the amount of time the kids... Mike, we looked this up recently. If you could just drag that number again just for people who are listening for the first time. Dear God, dear God, the amount of time the kids are spending on screens is, uh, you know, unprecedented. We are performing this... Massive, unbelievably complex, and long-term experiment on our children's brains—unprecedented uh, in uh, in human history. Uh, Thirty-five hours of TV per week for for kids, but it's even more of that for screen time, right? Something like that. I it mean, if you count, now. yeah, if you count sort of every moment the kids are spending in front of screens—from phones to tablets to computers to Xboxes to TVs to PS4s or whatever PS3s. It is a truly staggering amount. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I was, oh, you know, A, don't sit too close to the TV. And, you know, if you watch more TV, your your eyes will turn square or whatever they used to say. There was this, uh, sort of reminds me of this uh, video I saw once on online. Some guy was complaining about, you know, I've been trying to get my kids to go stop playing, you know, go outside, go outside, get out of the basement because they're playing video games, right? And what do they do? Is they take their wireless controllers and they sit outside, looking through the basement window, and play the video games that way. And uh, I I wonder at the degree of um, lack of internal generation that is occurring with this bombardment. Well sought after a bombardment of external stimuli is. Um, and I remember reading a book called Pornified years ago about a woman who was saying that um, with the prevalence of pornography, we have less of a desire, people who masturbate have less of a desire to think back on sexual exploits in the past as their source of stimuli. The average American watches more than five hours of live television every day. The average American then spends another 32 minutes a day on time-shifted television, an hour using the internet on a computer, an hour and seven minutes on a smartphone, and two hours, 46 minutes listening to the radio, listening to free domain radio. I think that's the average (laughs) But that's adults. I think for kids, it's uh,
5: kids is much higher.
0: Yeah, I think I think for kids, it's uh, it's a lot higher. And there was this government program that wanted to hand over all these tablets and laptops to kids, and they found that um, uh, that the kids' uh, reading and uh, comprehension and writing scores and math scores just plummeted. And this is another tragedy in the black community. I said the black community, probably because of the prevalence of single motherhood. Single motherhood plus Media is a real, um, a real problem because, I mean, single moms are busy. You know, They've got households to run. They've got life to do and all that. And uh, a lot of times, of course, there is, not not for all, but a lot of times there is this uh, problem where you, you know, the media becomes the babysitter. And uh, I remember that when I was a, a kid uh, coming home with my brother after school. And it was the usual deal. We'd be home by 3.30. And my mom would get home around six, two and a half hours. Well, what did we do? Well, sometimes we play and, and sometimes we go places, but a lot of times we sit in front of the 12-inch uh, you know, black and white TV that always seem to have these ripples, these second-hand TVs, and uh, it's, um, it's pretty passive. I right. Mike's got some more data for me. Today's children are spending an average of seven hours a day on entertainment media, including televisions, computers, phones, and other electronic devices. Seven hours a day. That is a lot. That, of course, you know, you've got, what, seven hours of school? You know, eight, ten, twelve hours of sleep, depending on the kid's age. And seven hours a day on entertainment media. That is that is a wild, wild experiment in what is going to occur. And I think, like most of these wild experiments, are going to have positive and negative uh, effects, but uh, it's a huge change. Listen, Bob, I'm sorry for rambling so much. It just brings yeah. up so much... Uh, that's quite stuff right. for me or all, all of the stuff so um no, I, I can you totally had another hate. question about um leftists
5: oh yeah well I, I went to school I went to college for an uh an engineering but most of the guys in engineering they're a bunch of squares and you know if, if you're not talking about math you can't do anything so most of my friends were actually in the um arts division like film and stuff like that but oh, the boy. the communist
0: division. Yeah, the communist propaganda Com- division. Yes. Right, right.
5: But boy, trying to get them to, I don't know, trying to come up with anything interesting. Like I wrote, actually, did wrote like a lot of scripts for them and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of times they just didn't like it because I kind of had a different twist on it, and you know we would get into these heated arguments, and I don't know. But I, I just thought it was just very interesting how. Usually there's a, a dichotomy between, you know, you have the thinkers, which are usually like the hard science, and you have the, like the artsy-fartsy division, but there's no, like, like you had mentioned before earlier in your show, there's there's no room for diversity in a lot of these other areas.
0: Oh, yeah. no, they're ferocious. Ferocious yeah, it's, censorship. It's really vicious. Occurs something. in the arts, you know, I mean, for those who don't know, and I don't know how many would care, but um, after... Um, I was involved in the sale of the company that I Uh, co-founded. This was in um, Lordy, 2001? Yeah, 2001, I think it was. So uh, after that, uh, I took a year and a half off because my dream had been to be a writer. That's what I wanted. I went to the National Theater School for acting and playwriting. I was a playwright. And I wanted to be a, a writer, a novelist. That was my um, philosophy. I, I thought philosophy would be a useful thing for me to to have in my novels, but and a powerful thing for me to have in my novels. But I wanted to be a novelist, and you can get my novels, and I think they're good. And I got some fantastic reviews, like a guy who reviewed *The God of Atheists*, who had a Ph.D. in literature, said that this was the great Canadian novel that everyone's been waiting for. You know, I, I remember um, after I got these uh, reviews, after I went through a writing program, uh, going to get an agent, and and uh, I remember sitting at at my office job, and um, every time the phone rang, I'm like, "Well, I guess I'm quitting because I guess this is my big writing." Co-. I mean, that was the kind of positive feedback I was getting, and everyone said, "You know, my writing teacher loved my writing, the agent loved my writing, and all that kind of stuff." And it never sold, never sold, and uh, it, that was a, a challenging, <laughs> a challenging experience to say the least. And it took a long time for me to sort of really get what was uh, what was going on. And look, it could be that I'm not a good writer. I mean, that, that's certainly a, a, a possibility. A, a good novelist. I think I'm a fairly okay writer. It could be. It could be. So I'm like, that's certainly a possibility. I think I've got enough positive responses from my novels. And I've written hundreds of poems and like 30 plays and just you name it, right? And uh, But I think I think it's good. I think it's very good stuff. Or at least it's, um, it's good enough that it, it could be books. And um, I, I in, when, in trying to figure out why everyone was so excited about my writing, but we nobody could ever sell it, I had to sort of try and go back in my mind, go back in my mind. I remember when I showed up at the National Theatre School, the, the, the director said, oh, you guys are all pretty young, white, and bougie, which is short for bourgeois, which meant, of course, that uh, he was on the left, significantly on the left. And there was that real, uh, real prejudice, real prejudice. And the left, of course, is all about the creation and portrayal of victims, 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 victims. And victims not of any personal malevolence, but of a general structural problem, structural violence, structural right. The class conflict, right, that there are these giant structures in society that crush and oppress oppress, uh, the, the, the people. And they can't do anything about it. And and this is why Bertolt Brecht and Mother Courage and her children, various other, even Tennessee Williams says people are just crushed by this circumstance. Nobody nobody's trying to be mean. Everybody gets destroyed, right? Or at least lots of people get destroyed. And this you can see this this communist shittery all over the place. And even in kids' movies, you know, what is it always? There's some forest with all these lovely animals, and then there's this evil mall developer who wants to crush the forest and put up a mall. And you know, and it's just you know. Bad guys want to knock down the orphanage and build soulless condos, and you know we, we got to put on a show to raise the money to save the. I mean, it's in the Blues Brothers for God's sakes, right? It's it's everywhere that there is not personal immorality, but there is a structural problem. And the reason for that, of course, if there's personal immorality, that's the religious, that's the Christian approach. If there's personal immorality, then you you either fight the bad guys or you try to turn them into good guys, right? You, you reason with them, you, you exhort them to better, or you fight them if you can, right? But it's not a structural thing, right? And, and you see this with racism, too. Structural racism. It's the, the racism is in the, the structure of the society as a whole, or sexism. or it's, it, There's not there's these individual racists that we need to make better or fight, right? It's the whole goddamn thing. Like exploitation. It's not like that there are good bosses and bad bosses. The whole system is exploitive. The whole system is sexist. The whole system is environmentally destructive. And this is just a naked grab for power. Because if you can identify, if if the structure is not a problem, but there are bad people in it, then you fight the bad people and you you leave the structure in place, whatever the structure is. But if the whole structure is unjust, innately, then communism, then socialism, then fascism, then Nazism, then some massive change. It's It's a coup of structure. And so you have to portray endlessly these uh, noble, good-hearted people, particularly the poor, noble, good-hearted people just crushed down by circumstances beyond their control. And that arouses in you a hatred of the structure of your society as a whole, which is how you dissolve the remnants of freedom that remain from the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. And that's all, calm, you, near, And that means that you have to get rid of individual choice, uh, and this is what happens in in communism. I mean, in communism. It's all class conflict. I mean, in communism, theoretically, e- e- the capitalists aren't bad. Of course, they are because they need every every religion needs its devils, right? But they can't. It's just the it's the actions of capitalism. It's the nature of capitalism. The owners of the the means of the production. They're not bad. They're just this, you can't right because if they were bad, you'd just say to the workers, "Well, you got to be the." The, you, you go buy the factory and everything will be great, but that was never the solution put forward by because that's not structural. That's just replacing the owner's it's property, the whole, the structure, everything, goddamn thing, whole thing has to go. Everything has to go because you can't save individuals when the structure is bad, right? It's like going down to the Titanic right now and giving mouth-to-mouth to the skulls. Right? It's not going to uh, it's not gonna help them out because it's long, it's long past any. So you have to get rid of free will. You have to get rid of personal moral responsibility. That's really foundational, really foundational. The way you do that in propaganda is you make sympathetic victims out of everyone who's being oppressed. Uh, and, and it is only the oppression that is harming them. Right? So the poor, I mean, when was the last time that in a movie you saw someone who was poor because he was stupid? I don't mean like retarded or, or like low intelligence or anything like that or developmentally challenged. What I mean is because he just made really bad decisions. You know, he had money, uh, he just blew it. He just made really bad decisions and did stupid stuff uh, and, and that this was, you know, this, this happened among the poor. You know, there are some people who are poor because of bad, bad things that happen and then there are other um, people who are poor because they're mean. You know, my mom broke. And mean. If you get so mean, it's unhirable. we couldn't be kept on in the workplace. You know, how many people are, are, are poor because they're just mean and selfish? Certainly not 100%, but it certainly isn't 0%. The fact that you never see them in movies. You know, when was the last time you saw a poor person in a movie who was genuinely unlikable? Well, it's not uh, common. Because so, well, we deny humanity when we use people as categories. Right? We, d- we deny their humanity. When was the time, last time you saw a Native uh, American who was just mean and nasty? Oh, you can't, you can't. Because you see, they're a giant category that is there to provoke the guilt and, and expose the system as racist and bigoted and hateful and horrible and therefore must be smashed and destroyed and replaced with something communistic or totalitarian or whatever, right? And again, I don't want to sort of go, go on about this uh, all day. But uh, art... Uh, for the most part, art now is uh, simply a, uh, a form of structural coup. Uh, they simply want to take the remnants of the Enlightenment, the remnants of the free market, and uh, destroy it and replace it with the usual freak horror show of history, which is some sort of totalitarian despotism. And the people who hunger for power and who hate life and hate humanity are constantly driving this. Once you, once you see this really, really clearly, that this leftist propaganda is virtually relentless. Virtually relentless. Uh, it is, um, it's impossible to miss. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy stuff anymore. I mean, you can enjoy propaganda as art. I mean, it, it's, it's but you, you, at least you, you do need to see it for, uh, for what it is. And uh, the degree to which the left understands the value of propaganda is um, is a beautiful evil thing. They they get how to change the world. The right, the right, the right keep thinking that it's it's arguments and and data and facts and and reason that uh, changes the world. Because, strangely enough, for being on the right, they're empiricists. But I mean, there's more evidence for the virtue of God, than the value and virtue of communism, empirical evidence. Um, I mean, religion in people's lives very often statistically makes people happier and and, uh, live longer and uh, have more satisfying relationships, a stronger uh, social net uh, and support system. So there's more evidence for the value and virtue of, of a deity than there is for survivability of communism. So um, people on the right, yeah, they they look at the facts and they they produce the facts. And people on the left create empty-headed slogans. They chant, no justice, no peace. And uh, they just have the most vicious verbal abuse that they pour on anyone that they dislike. And and they win. (laughs) And they win repeatedly and repetitively. Partly because there is this viciousness on the part of the left. And also partly because they have all of this juggernaut of propaganda behind them that makes what they say seem plausible, even though it's mostly insane. Does that does that help at all?
5: Yeah, I mean that that's actually a uh, point I was going to bring up too. Is that um, most of the hard left? They're very very good at tapping into the emotions and mm. bringing those emotions forward. While the right, they they have trouble with anything that's like emotion and like tapping into that, because art changes culture. Like that that's the main change of what culture is. I mean, you, you want to see what culture is nowadays, just go watch the latest music videos and have your brain melt through your ears. But yeah, that, that, like art changes culture and the um, the sort of the minds that are more drawn towards arguments, they've never really understood the importance of art, I would say. Well, look,
0: I mean, it could be that you're right. It could be that you're right. Or it could be that it's just way too late. Hmm. So, um, I mean, I worked for uh, off and on for a quarter century at developing my writing skills. Couldn't get published. So maybe people are just like, well, since all these lefties are in charge of the media... Well, I mean, I'm not going to. Like, forget it. Won't do it.
5: Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely got that. So it could. I mean, it could it. be
0: that they don't understand it, or it could be that that because they're empirical, they're like, okay, yep. <laughs> I
5: get that's <laughs> not going to work. Right. Right.
0: Hmm. This is very interesting.
5: Yeah. And then the other thing is, um,
0: who's the guy? To, sorry to interrupt. Just just before we move on, because I had another example of that. I honestly cannot remember his name, even though I like him uh, as a writer. I've read a couple of his books. He debated gun control with Pierce Morgan. And I think a year later or 13 months later, Pierce Morgan got fired from his show. He was um, He's like the new editor at Breitbart. Mike, if you can just look that up and give me his name. But uh, a good writer. And this guy originally was um, started writing fiction and he actually wrote a couple of scripts for The Good Wife um, which is a, a political show a legal political show and people were very interested in it and they were moving forward and this and that and the other but he he had a conservative blog and he had an agent and they were in the process of selling these scripts that he'd written uh, so this guy a very talented, very smart guy, a good writer obviously hmm. and then his agent uh, called him up and said, I can't sell these. It's over. And the guy said, well, what are you talking about? His agent said, oh, they found your blog. They found your blog and there's, there's no way that they're going to buy a script from you. And this was kind of jaw-dropping for the guy. Right? right. Because he, you know, he was... Uh, Really, quite uh, quite shocked and stunned at this basic reality that uh, you know, good writer, everyone wanted the scripts, loved the scripts, and then it's like, oh my god, he's got conservative leanings, right?
5: Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I mean, that that is very possible. Maybe they just never got into it. Art art does seem to be a good modulum of propaganda, and the left is always. Uh, Always in need of propaganda.
0: Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. Another fine Scottish name, um, but yeah, I'm just kidding. Ben Shapiro is the oh, uh, okay. yeah, I know this guy. guy. Yeah, and a, a well worth reading and uh, a very uh, very smart guy. And uh, he is um, yeah, so he tried, but there is an old saying that comes. It's not really a saying. And this is, um, I think it's in Godless by Ann Coulter. And it's a really uh, terrifying state of affairs that came out of the 1930s. And Whitaker Chambers, I think it was in 1938, broke with the Communist Party. So he was an American writer and translator, and he was in the Communist Party, and in 1938 or 1939, I think it was. I think it's 1938. He basically realized that he was on the side of evil, and he broke with the Communist Party. And the full story is incredibly gripping, incredibly powerful, and wends its way into the accusations of Soviet espionage against Alger Hiss and uh, McCarthyism, and the the complete falsehoods that are thrown around with regards to McCarthyism and it's, it's a gripping story and, and it's, she's a great writer and a very entertaining writer uh, and uh, what a storyteller but Whitaker Chambers said that conservatives will never win against communism because they don't understand how evil it is they, they, because they're pretty good natured because they're Judeo-Christian because they're free market guys They don't get it. They don't get just how sinister, vicious, evil, anti-life communism is. And he said that the battle for the future of freedom will be fought by two groups and two groups only. The communists and the ex-communists. Because it is only the ex-communists who have seen deeply enough how evil the doctrine is. The conservatives will be irrelevant. It will be the communists versus the ex-communists, and unfortunately, we just have not produced enough ex-communists to win the battle.
5: Interesting. Well, that I think that covers pretty much everything I wanted to talk about for that first point, for the first question, anyways. Yeah, just yeah, it just it just becomes more painfully obvious how uh, propagandized all the media is and. It oh, makes it somewhat difficult to
0: enjoy, but I can still enjoy some of the stuff. It does make it tougher to enjoy, but that's okay. I mean, you don't want to enjoy Nazi propaganda, right? And again, I'm not going to say that the the same yeah, as a Nazi, that's true. because we know that Nazism is bad. But um, it is a uh, it is a challenge. Uh, you know, I would certainly not count myself an ex-communist, but I was definitely a socialist when I was younger.
5: Oh yeah, I think and, like, uh, when you're in the teenage years, you just have tendencies to play with that sort of idealization.
0: Well, you live in a world of words rather than facts. Yeah. And giving money to the poor is a shallow and stupid way of helping the poor. I'm not saying it's never appropriate to, to give money for charity. I mean, I do regularly and quite a bit. But the idea that poverty is solved in the long run, through the transfer of money, is uh, is ridiculous. I mean, charity has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but it's only in the last 200 years that the poor have had, any, had anything other than disastrous in their life as a whole. And that's not because of charity, it's because of the market, because of freedom. Right. And um, there is a natural bias and, and it comes because, I mean, we, we're hoping that the Flynn effect is going to catch up with this and people are going to get smart enough to understand these things. But, you know, the, the fool looks at the man giving money to the poor and says, what a generous and helpful person. And the fool looks at the man brainstorming an idea for how to start a new business and says, oh, he's only in it for the money. Whereas it's the latter person who will really help the poor and the former person is halfway between helping and halfway between enabling, but certainly isn't going to break any kind of cycle, right? Yeah. The idea that, um, and this is straight up objectivism, of course, but the idea that uh, selfishness is not beneficial to society as a whole, but it's rather harmful, is really corrosive and really, really destructive. And especially those who are generous with other people's money.
5: It's always easy, easier to spend other people's money.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a coarse old saying, you know, like, she's so ugly, I wouldn't fuck her with your dick. <laughs> and, you know, it's it, it ain't charity if it's someone else's money, right? It's not yeah. charity. It's just bribery. It's just vote buying. That's all it is. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, the poor who've become dependent and the rich who've become dependent on these kind of handouts out, hand scream bloody murder when... Mm-hmm these handouts are threatened, right? I mean, did you know that for, I think, two years, from 2012 to 2013, Greece gave um, subsidized vacations to lower and middle class people? Give them these big set of uh, coupons. (laughs) Yeah, Mike, you had it. I can't find it right now. Do you want to just read that thing off? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Oh, here we go. Greece subsidized vacations for the poor from 2013 till 2014. The program provided, I guess, vouchers for social groups with mid and low incomes to take holidays in tourism establishments everywhere in Greece. It included discounts at Greek hotels and other lodges of all categories that that, that obtained some particular government seal. So subsidized vacations. And uh, they screen bloody murder. Now normally... When people scream bloody murder, we are skeptical, right? I mean, if there's a tax increase for the rich and the rich scream bloody murder, what do we say? Cheap and stingy, greedy people. Yeah, yeah, greedy people. Of course they're going to say that because that's just where their self-interest lies, right? So, you know, we may listen, but we're going to listen skeptically, right? Or let's say that someone who's a climate change skeptic has received a bit of money from an oil company. Or two, right? What do we say? Oh, it just paid off. You know, yeah, yeah. Of no objectivity is just paid off, right? It's just his yeah. self-interest, right?
1: People were pretty um, quick to throw that at Patrick Moore when we had him out. Patrick Moore, who was on, on the, the show. Day. It's yeah. like, oh, he,
0: he was in a commercial for an oil company. So that's my scientific argument. <laughs> or Veronique de Régis, right? She works at a the, uh, some institution which apparently gets some money from.
1: The Mercatus Institute.
0: Yeah, she gets money uh, – I think that the it, – it's, it's cocaine money, right? Is that – did I get that right? <laughs> it
1: would probably be less vitriol attached to it if it was cocaine. Yeah, if
0: it was only cocaine money <laughs> rather than coke money. <laughs> oh, for a moment I thought it was – I thought it was – I thought it was the Coke brothers. It turns out it's just an illegal <laughs> Colombian powder. <laughs> Colombian, as I've been told. But um, yeah, I mean so people oh, – yeah. so she's compromised, right? She's compromised. It costs nonsense, right? I mean, person with great inte- intellectual integrity. that I, you know. Anyway, so, so there's certain groups. When when we see financial self interest in, it, oh God, it's they, we discard them because they're totally compromised, right? But when the poor scream about cuts in the welfare state, what do we say? Oh, you poor, poor, poor people! How could you possibly because we, do this to them? We don't. We don't give them humanity. The poor are a giant lever used to dismantle freedom. They're not, people don't care about them as individuals. Caring about someone is a very complicated thing. Caring about someone is a very complicated thing. Caring about a group as a whole is an impossibility unless you are willing to reduce them to a cartoonish stereotype. You cannot care for a group as a whole. You can care for individuals and that is really hard. I mean, boy, you ever want to know why the welfare state doesn't work? Just watch the show Intervention once or twice where people try to stop drug addicts and people addicted to alcohol or other destructive stuff. They try and stop them from killing themselves with drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. And they stage interventions and they threaten to break all relations with them and they get professionals and they get training and they get experts and they, right? And... I don't know. I've only watched one or two episodes, but both times it failed. Some guy who had a bunch of tanning salons just drank himself to death. I mean, look at the Dr. Phil family. This is a family I that... I was
1: just thinking of them. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, they, they, this is, I think it's a doctor and his wife and their kids, and, and they've had massive amounts of psychological and social worker and expert resources and medical care thrown at them. I think this went on for like seven years. And it seemed to me that they were bloody well worse off at the end of it than they were at the beginning.
5: Wow, I didn't know that.
0: It's um, it's some chilling stuff. It's some chilling stuff. I mean, if you have tried it, Bob, if you tried it, like really trying to help someone in your life who's got some significant dysfunction.
5: Uh, yeah, my um, my dad's extended family. Um, we have no contact with them. I've only met them once, but my dad had when in his younger years he had tried helping his brothers and sisters and it got to the point where he was just like i can't i can't have you guys around my kids i can't have you guys anywhere and cut off all contact never met them but i've heard stories i have heard some just awful stories about how they are and they, they like to like blame my dad for everything like oh he's just greedy and he keeps everything to himself and yeah he, he tried he tried hard to help him
0: yeah. Just reading about this, you can go to drphil.com slash shows slash page slash family underbar archive. Six years ago, Erin, mother of Alexandra and Catherine and wife of Marty, wrote Dr. Phil asking for help. They seemed like an all-American family on the outside, but behind closed doors. They were struggling with problems that threatened to tear their family apart, including a teen pregnancy. 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 Anyway, so... um. <laughs> Six years later, right? So this is after six years of intense intervention on the part of Dr. Phil, I mean, obviously a recognized expert in his field. He's got Dr. Philip Zimbardo uh, on his team. He's got like massive amounts. He's got the top guys in in the every field to do with mental health that you could conceivably imagine, right? Right. And um, six years later, after six years of intervention, six years later, Aaron, Marty, Alexander, and Catherine are back and facing new troubles an arrest. Custody battles, divorce, and more. Follow their journey. (laughs) It's like, it's really not a journey. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's like dropping an egg out of an airplane over tarmac and saying, follow the egg's journey. (laughs) Are they going to journey
1: over to the Jerry Springer show, which may be a more appropriate venue?
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, it's just, uh... I mean, they had babies. The daughters had babies that were born addicted to drugs. They got involved with criminals. The the girl was homeless. I mean, this is all after years of intervention. Yeah. Years of intervention. And uh, it's, you know, it is really hard to help individuals. I mean, Mike, let's let's open the kimono a little here, shall we?
3: Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Close the kimono quickly now.
0: Okay, first of all, stand over the heater. (laughs) Anyway, um... So, Mike, I mean, we've been doing this show for a couple of years, right? And I would say we give, or I, guess me, right, mostly, give people some fairly not useless feedback from time to time, right?
1: I would agree with that,
0: absolutely. And it's not perfect, but, uh, you know, go to therapy, get yourself knowledge, live your values. But, you know, it's standard stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Of the people who have called in that we have followed up with, which is not everyone, obviously, it's not even the majority of people, but the people who listen to and follow the advice in a consistent way.
1: You know, it would be it would be tough to put a percentage on it because I don't follow up with everybody.
0: Hmm. But of the people that we do have some idea of.
1: I will say this. I, it's not uncommon for me to get like an email saying, hey, I was on the show two years ago. Or, you know, a year ago or something, can I come back on? And it's like, oh, well, what's your question? What do you want to talk about?
0: And it's about exactly the same stuff from two years ago. Why do you ask? The
1: the exact same (laughs) thing. And it's like, well, you know, I, I, because I keep notes on like the previous shows and stuff. I go back and it's like, oh, so have you gone to therapy? I think that was discussed in the previous show. No, I have not gone to therapy. So it's like, uh, (laughs) so you want advice, you want feedback, but you're not going to actually act on that feedback. If it's something that you don't want to hear. Hmm.
5: It's like watching a television show of your own life. You don't actually have to do
0: anything. You just expect things to happen. I think, and I think, I think just, just total guesswork, right? Just, just, but I think that probably, I think 20 to 30, 30% of people who call into the show do something seriously positive based upon the feedback they get. Mm. What, what, what do you think, Mike? Do you think that's way off base or...?
1: I certainly get more positive messages from people that are doing stuff with the feedback that they get on the show than I do, like, I got this feedback and then I did nothing. That's pretty passive.
0: So maybe it's 50% <laughs> so, or more, right? So, yeah, so maybe it's, it's 50% or more. It's certainly and, not,
1: you know, high 90s or anything like that.
0: Yeah, or it's not like 75%. So, you know, if you if you come on this show and we talk about some stuff, I give you some feedback, then 50-50, 60-40, whatever. You've got a, you know, pretty and, – and that – I mean – I think that it's some of the best stuff around. I, I do. I mean, obviously I do. Otherwise, I'd say to people, oh, God, go somewhere else. <laughs> go somewhere else, right? And uh, it's worth every penny that people don't pay for uh, for coming on the show. But um, that and, – and this is a show where, you know, people have listened to this philosophy. They have some – obviously some respect for what it is that I have to say and, uh, and so on, right? And still it's 50-50 about whether people – even do the stuff which I suggest or may recommend in in the show. Now, whether they follow up with it and expand on it and keep it going and continue to grow and so on, right? And um,
1: the therapy thing is the one that really stands out to me. It's like, I've been listening to the show for three years. Have you gotten to therapy? No. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. And I get that. I mean, that's a huge decision. And it's it's pretty expensive, of course, for a lot of people. I mean... It's expensive. I mean, if you have got insurance, a lot of insurance, but most people don't, right? So, that that is a big a big commitment. And uh, I, I'm one to talk, right? I mean, I had to wait till things got pretty pretty bad in my life before I really dug into uh, into therapy. So I, I kind of get it, and I understand that, but uh, it is um it is a huge challenge to actually proactively dig in and help people in a productive and meaningful way. Now, I know this show does that because we get countless emails of like, you know, I don't hit my kids. Uh, I've got better relationships. I'm more honest with the people in my life. I've got the job of my dream, whatever, right? I mean, there is, uh, you know, it's why we do it. It's why we do it. Um, because it is clearly helping huge numbers of people. I mean, huge numbers of people live vastly better lives. And that that's what it's all about. That's why we do it. That's what makes it worthwhile. But the idea of giving, of of helping a category of people called the poor is so fundamentally bigoted. I mean, if I had one opinion about all blacks, what would people say? Racist. Racist. And it would be true. If I said, blacks are heh, Right? it it, it fundamentally wouldn't even matter that much whether it's positive or negative. It would be racist, right? Right. And, uh, but but this kind of poor, poorism, you know, where you just, the poor are this, right? The poor are victims, the poor are noble, the poor are struggling, the, you know, the single moms are victims and they're heroic and the teachers are, all care about the kids and are you know, the system may be bad, but they, you know, like all this nonsense, all this nonsense. Um, you know, because people sometimes get upset at that. Oh, you Steph, you know, you said something positive about the police. Oh, and I—I'm not sure that I have, in general, or I don't know <laughs> if I have even in particular, but I—I I really, really resist categorizing a group morally. Yeah, there are corrupt cops, of course there are. I mean, vicious, brutal. I mean. Three cops, I think it's two guys and a woman. Three cops just got to charged with gang rape, repetitive gang rapering. Yes, Gosh. there are some really nasty, vicious, evil cops around. And there are some cops who are really trying to do some good work and really trying to help their communities. There are shitty government teachers. And there are government teachers who are really trying to do – I mean, I was taught by one or two of them. Really trying to do some good in a system and a skeptical and – Oh, we've had to call into
1: the show, some teachers. I'm sorry? We've had some teachers call to the show that are really trying to do some positive stuff in a really terrible situation.
0: Yes, that's, that's very true. Exactly true. And so people want to create these convenient categories. And, uh, I mean, obviously at the extreme ends of the human condition, you know, I'm not sure how many gentle concentration camp guards <laughs> there were in Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia or whatever. You know, probably not a lot, if any, right? But we're not at that stage in in the society. And, of course, a lot of the people in the concentration camps probably thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, we can see that all over with us. We know that the initiation of force is immoral, but people believe that taxes are the price we pay to live in a civilized society, right? That is just the way that things are. Prior to knowledge... There's no such thing as moral responsibility. And uh, the expansion of knowledge is the creation of moral responsibility. So uh, it um, it is a challenge. And I, you know, the poor are a very complex group. A very complex group. And some of them are there because they were tragically preyed upon as children and their lives were destroyed through abuse. And that is horrible. Some of them are there because... They just were not born with much intelligence. You know, intelligence is a bell curve. Some of it is genetic. Some of it is environmental. Estimates widely range, but without a doubt, some of it is genetic, at least to my mind. And some people are born less intelligent. Some people are born more intelligent. And some people are poor because of that. Some people are poor because they're mean. Some people are poor because they're lazy. So, and, And so what happens is, and because we have this weird category, categorism, this categorism, this bigotry based on categories. If I say something like some poor, some people are poor because they're lazy, people are like, oh, so you're saying all the poor are lazy, right? I mean, and it's just this weird click that happens to people and it's the result of decades of incredibly positive propaganda. uh, Incredibly effective Propaganda which lumps all the poor in one category and you get one giant brush with which to paint the poor and it's like this ultimate fill program, you know, like F-I-L-L in, in Windows or Mac, you'd touch something and it fills the whole category, the whole circle or the whole triangle. You got one thing, one brush, and you paint all these people with one brush. And you, you just, you can't, there's no, no exception. And so if you say poor and lazy, it's like, oh, all the poor are lazy, right? And uh, there
1: was a lot of this on the Truth About Poverty video that I believe was put oh, out yeah. last year. And people
0: they can't they can't process it.
1: And of course, because you are talking about people potentially having the opportunity to pull themselves up by their bootstraps through hard work, you must be someone that's rich, white, male, born with silver spoon in mouth, you know. You-
0: well, or the people who know about me starting life in grinding poverty in a welfare ghetto. Who are like, well, but, you know, you were born with particular gifts. Mm. And, you know, you think that everyone has, you know, again, it's just can't fit the paradigm. But the poor are people. I mean, it, it seems weird to have to say this. The poor are people too. And I grew up among the poor. I think I have some insights around the poor. I grew up poor in England. I grew up poor in Canada lived in a variety of of locations, also spent some time around some pretty rich people, too, in boarding school. It was a pretty expensive school. My father was paying for it, and then he stopped paying for it. It's the only reason I was able to go. But um, the poor are people, and there is no category called the poor that eclipses the individuality of people who happen to be in that category. And the idea that we cannot ascribe virtues and vices to an entire category of people is a way of fundamentally dehumanizing them, which means that they're being used for political purposes and nobody cares about these people as individuals. I mean, I'm reading a book by Shelby Steele uh, called White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era he's a he's great i mean like i'm oh my god like my teeth are tingling with how great a writer he is and how insightful he is and um i won't sort of get into it but he basically he says uh, it it incredibly frustrates me when people talk about blacks as a as a collective and um refuses to ascribe individual virtues and vices to people within the black community, because there's this weird fill program. You know, you just want to put one point on the screen, and it fills the whole damn thing, you know? I knew a black guy who was mean. Oh my god, are you saying all black guys are mean? It's like, no, it's not a fill program. It's pointillism. There's no fill. Fill is your bias. It's nothing to do with what I'm doing. Right? Anyway. Sorry. It hope that wasn't too much of a tangent. probably was. But, uh, <laughs> All right, I think I should probably end the show. What do you think? Yes, probably. Yeah. Was that even remotely useful, or I was basically just rambling for for my own entertainment? It was useful. It
5: was very interesting. I, I enjoyed it. It went a very different direction than I thought it would.
0: Well, listen, Bob. If if you know, if we didn't get it, please rebook. If we, if we didn't get it, <laughs> very useful, you know, please. Yeah. So may,
5: know. Maybe I'll call in again. I I'd like to talk more about like childhood developmental and, like, you know, how, like, schools and the amount of drugs that they like, pump into the kids and how that might, like, affect future creativity generations, yeah, I might, I might call back in again, because
2: very, very Oh,
0: yeah, when I was a kid, you just got lines and detentions. Oh, yeah. And they didn't how actually they physically pump. rewire your brain with pseudo-medications, so, yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a very good topic. Feel free to.
5: Yeah, when I was in elementary school, my teacher wanted to put me on ADD drugs, and my mom was like, nope, <laughs> switch schools sit and dodge
0: the bullet on that one wow good for her do give her our do give her our thanks <laughs> yeah, I, as I I'm, sure uh, yeah as I'm sure you've yeah i'm sure you've given her yours but yeah i mean it's a great topic and i know that i rambled all over the place here but uh, oh, that's okay. uh please uh call back call back it. in again you've got great questions and i promise to listen more next time okay yeah
5: I that, that's great. That
0: great. thank <laughs> you so much and of course thanks everyone so much for calling in for supporting the show freedomainradio.com slash donate. We really do need a leg up here. It's a short month. It's after Christmas and uh, we still, uh, our calorie requirements have not diminished to the point where um, we don't need your help. So please, please, please come and help us out at uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Um, Sign up for a subscription and uh, put a smile on our faces and some uh, food in our bellies. So have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. We will talk to you on Wednesday night. Take care.